Tonight's episode of the Bill Simmons Podcast on the Ringer Podcast Network brought to you by ZipRecruiter. I wonder if you're like me and you're wondering what these athletes have been doing during their hiatus. Like Steph Curry, I bet he's a good enough golfer at this point to go uh, on the PGA Tour. He must be shooting like 64s constantly. Well, some people and businesses are branching out during this time, but there are places that are doing what they've always done like our presenting sponsor, ZipRecruiter. Throughout all this, their mission has remained the same. They're still helping people find jobs and helping growing companies hire for their teams by bringing together candidates who need employment and employers looking for great candidates. ZipRecruiter is committed to helping our workforce stay strong. Let's work together. ZipRecruiter.com slash work together. We're also brought to you by TheRinger.com and The Ringer Podcast Network. Some of our newest podcasts include Flying Coach with Steve Kerr and Pete Carroll. That podcast is awesome. The Wire, Way Down in the Hole with Van Lathan and Jamel Hill. TV Concierge, exclusive on Spotify, little 12 to 15 minute reviews of new TV shows. And then just recently, we announced we have a new baseball podcast coming out called Baseball Barbecue. It's by the guys from Suspetus Family Barbecue. You might know them, Jake and Jordan. I know there's no baseball right now, but it is coming back. But they're going to do a little deep dive into some of the 21st century's greatest baseball moments. If you don't know these guys, they have an awesome social feed. You might have seen them on DAZN. And uh, and we think they're really good. So we're excited to work with them. The Baseball Barbecue, that podcast you can subscribe now on Apple and on Spotify. And it's launching Soon, coming up, Russillo and I are going to talk about episode seven and eight of The Last Dance. We're going to talk about UFC 249. We're going to talk about a, a pretty discouraging uh, week in NBA news that we uh, we really want to dive into. And then the rewatchables, tackling the 97 finals. That's all coming up. First, our friends from Pearl Jam. <laughs> All right, happy belated Mother's Day, everybody. Sunday night, Priscilla and I just watched uh, episode seven and eight of The Last Dance. My two favorite of the first eight. Um, I really feel like this gets into all the stuff that I really care about, about Jordan over everything else is the legendary competitiveness, the vindictiveness, the pettiness. Priscilla, you like them more or less after these two episodes? Way more. Way more. I keep waiting for the lead up where it was like, yeah, some of this stuff, you know, he's not thrilled. You know, change the opinion. I, I like him even more. I actually, as I've watched these episodes, Bill, I regret not appreciating him more in the moment. I love that every part of it's real. I love every single story. I've taken his side in everything. And this is not some MJ <laughs> guy that, that, you know, had the posters. I, I can't emphasize this enough. I was sort of, I'm, I'm annoyed at my 20-year-old self of, of not appreciating the greatness enough because now that we've gotten to know him more intimately, I'm like, I love this guy. We told the story on previous podcasts about how I had seen the initial DVD that MB, DMB Entertainment made. They filmed them for the entire 97-98 season. I saw it probably 10, 11 years later. And like the Scott Burrell stuff... That was the stuff I really remember being fascinated by that part and and like how lonely he was on the road and him just having only security guards as his friends, stuff like that. But pushing Scott Burrell 
specifically was the part I remember standing out all those years ago that he felt like he was doing the right thing, pushing this guy, pushing this guy, badgering him. And meanwhile, Scott Burrell was just a nice guy. And, and Jordan saw something in him that he, he targeted and was like, at some point I might need this guy. There's something in there. I'm going to keep pushing, 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 you know, in 2020, I wonder if somebody acted that way, how it would be received in the moment, week to week, month to month. I think when you see it in a documentary and all the stuff's happening 20 to 25 years ago, it seems a lot cooler, but it'd be fascinating if he was doing this now with the way the internet works and the 24 seven basketball cycle and how every little slight and soundbite and story can blow into a whole one day thing. I don't, I, I just think it would be a lot harder. The Burrell thing, though, is great in that like, I would love if I were Scott Burrell if Michael Jordan cared about me enough to want to motivate me. The problem is, is if you're a teammate or really any situation where there's this guy who's like great at what he does and you're working with him, if that person ignores you, that's the worst thing. So if, if the worst thing MJ did, and yeah, the Steve Kerr altercation isn't something you'd want all the time, but Kerr says it brought us together. I mean, guys get physical, stuff happens. I think sometimes we forget, like, these guys are doing something very physical and competitive, and they're all wired a little bit differently, and you know, you, you can't have this stuff. Like, you can't do well at my workplace, Well, no one cares about your workplace. And for Burrell to be somebody that he was just badgering the whole time because he actually cared. The funny part is, is in the doc, Bill, he's like, yeah, you know, and um, he basically admits, like, Burrell wasn't that great of a player and it didn't really work, and hell, he's a nice guy. And you'd always heard that, like, that was his buddy because some of the Yukon guys that had played with Scott stores were like, this is crazy, but Scott Burrell's like best friend on the team is Michael Jordan. But I just, I do, was it a buildup? Was it a bit of a like buildup thing? Like you're not going to believe like this doc is amazing. Okay. I love it. I'm enjoying it every night, but I always felt like there was going to be this, this part of it where we we're going to start to see the side of MJ that was going to turn people off from him. And for me, at least, I think a lot of people it's had the opposite reaction. It doesn't go into the times when he did this to people where it didn't work. Brad Sellers, great example. Dennis Hobson. Like if you read all the MJ books, he would try this with different people. And sometimes it would drive the guy off the team within a year. And by the way, Bird was like that too in the Celtics. He had guys, Brad Lohaus was a really good example where Bird McHale, basically Brad Lohaus had to leave the team. They just rode him relentlessly. They made fun of him. He got a, he got like a perm once and Mikhail was calling him Fifi and, and it was just, some guys just can't take it. It, it actually would backfire the other way. I think Cartwright was probably the best teammate that if you read the books, like he really went at and Cartwright was like, I'm going to fucking kill you. Like you won't, <laughs> there's a line you're not going to cross with me. The next time you, you go to go to the basket and practice, I'm going to deck you and clothesline you and end your career. So you know, so guys handled it differently, but I, Parrish told a story. Somebody interviewed Parrish who inexplicably is on the team in 1997 at, at like the tail, 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 tail end of his career. And he was just like, he's not still he, on the team. <laughs> yeah, he, might. he basically, he had some quote like, yeah, Michael knew don't try that stuff with me. I would have just punched him. So I don't, I I don't know that. whether, yeah. yeah, I don't know whether he picked certain people to do this with, but you know, the Steve Kerr thing's a great one because that's a famous story of him punching Kerr. The part that doesn't get told as much as Kerr's the one who starts it by 
basically punch him in the chest and he stood up to him. And after that, Jordan was good with him from that point on. But, you know, you think about like the last 20 years, the rise of the anti-hero on TV, right? Starting with uh, Tony Soprano and The Shield. The Shield, Oz, and you, yeah. You go all through all these dudes who were like, I shouldn't like this guy, but I do. And and then it became more layered with like the Don Draper types and people like that. But the the first type of person Boston like this Common. was- <laughs> Boston Common. <laughs> Uh, the first, the first level of these people was the testosterone anti-hero, and I wonder if Jordan kind of was one of the people that started that. <laughs> I'm just so happy you got the Boston Common reference. I think it I've done good. it to you. I think I've done it to you like three or four times in a year, and you're just like, hey, okay. Yeah, <laughs> that, that one. I you finally landed it. <laughs> I was just, I was just saying good night for the rest, rest of the pod. Uh, you know, when you win, though, right? We all know how this works. We wouldn't be doing this doc if if MJ hadn't won all these rings. And if you don't win, it's like, oh, this guy's really, you know, he's just really kind of, kind of tough to play with. Um, but you know, he has a really, he has so many great lines in this. And when he gets so emotional at the end of the seven, I'm getting texts from people that I hadn't even heard from. Being like, I'm freaking out right now. Like people are getting emotional watch MJ watching MJ cry, and I'm just saying, look, I never asked you guys to do anything I didn't do. You yeah, know? and that's what I think is great about this pre-access era. Even though we have the access to it now, but this thing where the world does not live on Instagram, and he wasn't doing any of this to to show up. Like he wasn't doing this to go. Oh, I'm so into it because that's kind of one of the things I think is so funny about athletes today. And some of these guys are still working their asses off, and they're better at it than they've ever been before. Super dedicated. There's also guys that post like a 15 second clip on Instagram, and it's like grinding. You know, every day I grind, and you're like, no, you don't. Or I love the boxing videos are always my favorite, like still a little work to do. It's like, you're the one that put the video out. Like you want everyone to believe that you're so into this and you're working so hard. And because we didn't know about any of this stuff, like this guy was actually doing it. He was expecting his teammates to do all this stuff and you factor in all the winning. All right. Yeah. It, it may have been too abrasive. Not everybody is motivated the same way. You know, some people you have to piss off and some people you have to completely leave alone or they'll shut down. And I'm sure MJ had his problems, just like some great coaches that don't can't quite figure out how to push all those different buttons. But I keep getting back to this thing to see him break down at the end of seven, Bill, be like, hey, look, all you people that want to talk shit or say whatever, like, I beat all of you. <laughs> I beat all of you. And I did it because I cared. So don't like I'm not going to fucking apologize because I maybe cared more than the rest of you guys did. And that wasn't even the most fascinating breakdown of episode seven. The one I was more riveted by was Tim Grover almost broke down. Have in, you met in, Grover? No, but I mean, he's I've telling the story. Times. Yeah. He's like, first of all, he's so fired up that MJ gets knocked out by Orlando. And he's like, hey, man, when am I going to see you again? A couple of weeks. He's like, I'll see you tomorrow morning. <laughs> Grover's just like, oh, this is this is the light of my life. I'm so happy yeah. I met this guy. But then later he starts talking about how hard Jordan worked and he fucking got choked up. He's talking about another dude that he just worked with and trained. And he was so inspired by the guy. He's getting choked up in front of a camera crew. I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, and the space jam part of it where that, you know, my, maybe my only complaint of the entire doc was if you have all of these space jam pickup game, if you have all of this footage, I, I told you this. To just, uh, 
Just I, run I it. told you. I told you this was joke. When I saw the cut, it drove me crazy. But I'm uh, like, so just just let it go ahead. You know it better than I do, so I'll get out of the way. No, I I uh, I did the recon. That was all the footage. Oh, that that's was, it. That was every oh, morsel. <laughs> all right. See, these guys are all right. Still, a, still A's across the board. That's it. See, I'm thinking you have all of this footage, just no. like five minutes uninterrupted, no no voiceover. So that's no, you it, know, huh? you know, it'd be a good video. You and me, we should do this. Let's do this this week. Jackson's on on the thing. Let's arrange this. You and me watching that video, trying to identify every player in it, because there were two guys. Because they, it was shirts and skins at one point. And there were two guys, and I'm like, I know, I know who that guy is. Who there was like two big guys, and I well, couldn't there's figure one who guy. It was. You're like, why is Evander Holyfield in this pickup game? Yeah, who was that guy? <laughs> he's not because he's clearly no that huge. that guy was he's huge. I think it was Armin Gilliam, but I'm not positive. Is the hammer. Possible? I think it was the hammer, but uh, so apparently, because I I you know I I know a couple people, and I I said. Just can you just send me all the Space Jam footage? I just want to watch the scrimmages. Is that weird? I mean, we're being no. quarantined right now. I was like, I would just watch every minute of that. And they were like, that's all there is. They only filmed for a couple of minutes. And I'm thinking, like, well, that's only one of the great missed opportunities of all time. I I know Juwan, Jalen said Juwan stayed with him in LA, at least for a part of that, MJ. So I I don't know if Jalen played in those games or not, but it, it, but it at some point it was the elite of the elite going to LA to play in those games, and I think that's how it all started in the summers with the NBA, with the guys going to LA every summer. I think that was the summer it started because the guys wasn't always the case where everybody lived in LA during the summer. That was a last twenty five years thing. So yeah, I'm with you. I to me that was the most that is so much more interesting than the dream team footage. We know the dream team story. There's a whole fucking documentary about it. Space jam footage. I'm all in. Plus, did you see that dome they built? That's what they're going to be doing in the Orlando bubble and the Vegas bubble. They exactly what that dome was with the lights. That's how they're going to do the games. I could just imagine being a PA and then Grover coming over and be like, Hey, uh, can you get out of here? And I'd be like, well, I just, I have a break. So I'm just going to get some shots up. Like, you know, they, they built this for Michael Jordan and we have like five all-stars coming. I love that you're freaking out about it. Cause that's what I was doing. And I'm going, how do you not run more of it? I mean, I guess there just wasn't enough camera equipment around on Warner brothers studios to just spend 30 minutes shooting this practice. I don't even know why they filmed the minute and a half that they had. I mean, that's my point. If you got the, if you got that, yeah. you got some clips, then what the hell was the holdup? Unless somebody said, no, you can't do any of this stuff, but yeah, I'll hammer the point one more time is that. When he talked about re-sculpting his body from baseball to basketball, when they set up the gym next to the court, hey, I'm going to get three hours worth of hoops in on top of filming and all this stuff. The only reason he was doing it was that he could go back and win championships. He wasn't doing it for anybody else other than himself. And that's the constant theme of this. Like, You may not like the process. You may not like some of the quotes. You may think this, this, and this. But if my goal was to be this guy and I actually accomplished it in comparison to the hundreds of other athletes that always want to be the best, uh, I did it and I won. So, you know, it's it's kind of a big F off at the end of that episode seven where he gets really and he's not even mean about it. He's super emotional. And it just I think anybody that's ever, you know, the guy, the pro athletes and stuff that are watching that stuff, it's going to be so inspiring. And there, he wasn't self-aware about it either. Incredible work ethic. But it wasn't one of those things where, you know, he named a philosophy after it or he had, 
it was just, he just did the work, you know? And, and exactly. Even like when they talked about in the baseball stuff and that the hitting coach is talking about when he played baseball, how he'd hit in the morning, he would hit before the game, they'd play in the game, then he'd stay after to, you know, hit it until midnight. And then he'd come back in the morning and do the same thing. I mean, that's one of the many reasons why he was great. He had, there was also the physical advantages, which we discussed in previous pods as well. The best body control of any NBA player ever. ever. Um, and was the perfect size. I think if, if you were starting a basketball player from scratch, you would say six foot six. But then when you throw in the work ethic and that's, you know, bird, we always heard like growing up in, uh, in new England about birds, legendary work ethic, but bird in the summers was mowing his lawn and drinking beer. And then he would use the season to kind of get back in shape. He, he was not a year round work ethic guy. During the actual season, he was I, magic. Same thing. I know magic wasn't, you know, during the summers he wasn't working out with whoever the Tim Grover of the eighties was. So it, Jordan was the guy who brought this stuff in the league. And the other guy who we're going to talk about later when we do the rewatchables, uh, Carl Malone, he was the first guy who was really like, this is a year round thing. I'm going to be in amazing shape. I'm going to be really durable. I'm going to play 3,800 to 4,000 minutes a year. And that's when the league really starts to change. And that leads to the Kobe generation. And especially LeBron, who I think has kind of mastered this version of what Jordan did. I mean, the, the amount of time, money, energy LeBron has put into his body really since I would say about 2008. It's, it all starts with this Jordan run when he comes back from, uh, when he, when he tries to beat the Pistons initially in 91, right? So this is 30 years of this, but he's, He's the prototype. What did you think about the baseball thing? Was anything uncovered in watching the baseball part of it? Because it's not only have we we had moments where we watched this where you go, I still can't believe an NBA owner let this guy walk away. Uh, it's still hard to process 25 years later, the greatest player of all time decided to play minor league baseball. Yeah, it's, it's never totally passed the smell test, but I thought they did a good job of laying out the case of how all this happened. I still feel like there was going to be some repercussions with Stern for all the gambling stuff. Um, not okay. But just last week you said you still don't believe it actually happened though. No, I don't. Right. I'm okay. saying like, I'm saying maybe he was going to get suspended for five games or fined or something like that. I, who knows? But I just think it was, a, it was all these different factors and it, and it kind of makes sense, but yeah, it still does. The part that will never make sense to me is that you have this competitive guy who just feels like, yeah, I'm good. I've, I've done this. Now I get the whole, didn't have the competitor, the carrot being waved in front of him, all the stuff we've already talked about in the pod, but it, it's so hard to accept the whole, this guy was the most competitive, he's an animal. And then he's just like, yeah, I'm good. I'm not going to play anymore. It it just it it ninety percent adds up, but there's still a ten percent where I'm like I still feel like there's a tiny bit more to this that maybe we'll find out someday, or maybe we'll never find out. Okay, but let me let me throw a theory at you based on because it was something I was thinking about as I was watching that part of it. Because there's the writer that says the reason why he wasn't suspended, and they do shoot it down, and that's always been kind of my argument that there's no way that Stern could sit in a room with MJ and say you're going to be suspended for I don't know how it's eighteen months, or it's like hey most of 
a full season and then some of the next or whatever, and then it would never be exposed, that there wouldn't be one smoking gun person that would say, well, this is what happened or a different version of the whole thing. And the fact that Stern would want to ruin his own product. Like if you believe Stern was capable of rigging <clears throat> Patrick Ewing to the Knicks, why would he not want MJ playing? And and top of the investigation, as you go back and research, the investigation was like uh, just throwing the media a carrot to get him to leave him alone. And there wasn't really even an investigation at MJ anyway. So as you talk about him leaving and something doesn't add up, I think one of the things that we're, we knew then and we're learning is that maybe he is so driven. Maybe he's so headfirst into basketball that the way his gears are going when he's actually playing is more mentally exhausting than anyone else. Like, is he actually as successful as a player because he, he puts so much into it that he's more likely to burn out. Like there are, there are people in their fields that are so great at doing what they do and they get kind of in this headspace that actually they have a hard time of just keeping this, this pace that maybe is better for the long run, but doesn't have the peaks. I think that's might be the 10% I was talking about. And that's something that we wouldn't be able to understand. He's the only person who would know he was incapable of taking games off. And he's been very vocal about that through the years. I, every night I play basketball, there's people in the stands that have never seen me play before. I'm always going to try my hardest to try to win everything I do. And that's also the kind of person he was. I, I need to win at all times, every second of the way. And if he felt like he couldn't sustain that and stay at that level and it just wasn't acceptable to him. And now his dad doesn't get to watch him anymore. If you had all that stuff up, it makes sense, but he's, he's the only one he knows. I'll tell you this though, that guy from 1988 all the way through 93. And then the guy who comes back from 96 to 98, the load management thing, he just wouldn't have done it. And I, and I'm not saying this is our, our era is better than this era. I'm just saying he was, yeah, he yeah. couldn't, he couldn't have done it. I don't think he was wired that way. I don't think it wouldn't have been acceptable to him to have like a Thursday night game against whoever Damian Lillard and the Blazers and just be like, yeah, I'm going to take this one off. He just wouldn't have done it. So I think when you think about that layoff and we talked about this a couple of weeks ago about, Oh, if he had, if he hadn't retired, he would have won eight straight titles. I don't think so. I, I, I don't think what he was doing was sustainable. And you even see that in the 97 finals that we're about to talk about heading into 98, where there's real atrophy, um, for him from the day-to-day -day basketball thing, like his percentages just go subtly down. Like it's harder for him to get his shots off because he played 304 games out of 304 in three years. Never, never missed a game that last three years. Not sustainable. I don't think. I agree with you on the load management, just of his mindset, but there's also this kind of thing, like when it's not an option and it's not part of professional basketball, no one was going to do it. You know, we used to have that in baseball where guys would play 162 all the time. And now it just seems stupid. You know, right. I'm not the, the biggest Ripken load manager guy. Yeah. Like that's, that's actually dumb, you know? Yeah. Like it's unbelievable accomplishment, but I don't, I don't know that, you know, not being able to hit for a week and, and going over four because you're just grinded after going like a hundred straight games. Like, so even though I can be anti some of the rest arguments, certainly not all of them, if, it were socially acceptable, the NBA socially acceptable. MJ may have taken a couple of those games off because he wasn't doing anything different than anybody else in the league. But it's hard to even fathom that considering every single episode, you just see that he's 
He's just different. Do you think Kobe, after eight episodes of this documentary, do you think Kobe's career is even more interesting? I mean, I knew all the, we were there for all the Jordan stuff and then all the Kobe stuff. And it was always, it was always apparent how much, you know, how much he was impacted by everything Jordan did on the court, off the court, work ethic, the, the tireless competitiveness, all that stuff. But then when you actually watch this all together, it's a lot of what Kobe ended up preaching when he played, especially the second half of his career. When he started talking, when he did the Mamba stuff and started talking about inspiring his teammates, it was basically the more vocal version of what Jordan did this whole time, but never talked about it. And then Kobe was doing the, here's my mindset on all of this version of it. And I don't know which one's more interesting to not know what's happening in the moment or to hear somebody talking about it the entire time as they're doing it. I, I am more of a subtlety person, but you could make the case either way. None of that part is, is all that, um, new to me. I, you know, I just look at patterns and the way people talk and his, his whole cadence, the way he would emphasize words in a sentence, the way he, the, the tone he was at Kobe was doing an MJ impersonation the entire time. And that's fine. Cause like at least Kobe was the kind of guy who could back it up with his work ethic and caring about winning and all that different stuff. But I mean, Kobe wasn't just tasting his own legacy. I think he was trying to emulate MJ the entire time. And when I would say that when Kobe was still playing, you'd get pushback as if it was some kind of like, oh, you just, you know, it was like a dig guy. on Kobe. Yeah, yeah. You're digging on Kobe. And you're like, look, I mean, this is this is undeniable. Like, you ever heard Billy Donovan talk and go, whoa, dude, like how how impressionable were you when you were around Patino? Like Billy Donovan talks just like Rick Patino. It's weird. You know, it's it's almost like like, wow, like you whatever when he was coaching you at Providence, like you just your pattern, the speech, the whole thing is the same deal. So like when Kobe did the 2009 Orlando finals deal where he was just pissed off at everybody. Remember he was doing all those post-game pressers? Yeah. Like I felt it was a bit more of an act, but if that was the act to motivate him, like Jordan never had this peak and valley thing. Like he was always kind of, you know, whatever he was in was in his own register where Kobe, you kind of didn't really know what you were going to get all the time. And oh, nine, he went real hard on this me against the world thing. And it was his first, it was going to be his first ring post Shaq, which we know how important that was to him. But then when Kobe kind of at the very end was like, oh, this is all done. And then when it's everybody's favorite, it was, it was a real quick 180. So like Kobe had a bunch of different personalities that he seemed to go to where even though he was impersonating MJ, MJ always just felt steadier, if that makes sense. I think that was why I had such, one of the reasons why I had such a hard time with Kobe during his career. Cause I always felt like it was this carefully crafted MJ homage impersonation, something like it, but to hear him talk about it on the documentary, I thought was really cool where he's just like, I don't win five titles without Jordan. He gave me advice. I learned every single thing that I ended up doing from him. So it's not like he was like pretending it wasn't happening. Like he was totally honest about it, but look, um, it's way better. It's way better than Dion waiters doing an MJ impersonation, his whole career and trying to carry himself that way. And then you're like, what, what's going on? You know what I was thinking as I was watching this tonight, you know, that Jordan ends up June, 1993, he's in the finals. Then we don't see him again until March 95. So he's gone 21 months. The three greatest athletes I've seen in my life were Michael Jordan. I caught tail end of Ali, but I barely remember it. But at least I was like 
alive and coherent and pooping in a toilet. So <laughs> I, I'm counting it. Congrats. Um, and then Tiger. And those are the three guys that that I think hit this level that was just higher than it than everybody else who did their sport in the last 50 years. And all of them had layoffs for completely different reasons, right? Ali loses almost five years with the Vietnam protest thing. Like, gives away his title because he's so convinced on this thing. Jordan leaves the baseball, which we just discussed. And then Tiger gets he the combination, the knee surgery, and then the stuff with his wife. And he's basically gone two years. It's so strange that both of them leave for, for at least almost two years. And then in Ali's case, twice as long. And then some, um, when they were still like technically in their primes, you know, Ali was, Ali was in the the middle of it. I mean, Ali is just, I think it's just under four years for Ali. Right. And something like it's between four and four and a half. I can't remember. So Ali doing it as a fighter, you can just see that he's robbed of those years where you're supposed to be in the ring. And look, he comes back. He's he's still incredible, but he just looks like a different guy. I mean, everybody he's, you could hit him when he came back. He was right. he I mean, he was 85% as good, but it's very similar to the Jordan thing. Where Jordan, when Jordan comes back for the second three titles, he's not the guy that he was the first three titles, but he figures out all these different ways to basically be the same guy. And that's that's basically what Ali was doing. He he just kind of reinvented. And think about himself. that. <laughs> and I, I don't know that I can turn it into like what's harder to do because no, I still think any combat workout is so far beyond, you know, rowing sucks, um, running sucks. You know, basketball is a whole different kind of shape that you have to be in and just the d- different angles and, and the start stop and all that kind of stuff. I tell you, running routes, if you haven't done that in a long time, is, is horrible. Not that anybody over 40 is probably out there running routes all over the place, but not being in a situation where you're actually worried about getting hit by somebody else. Like it's just, it's a different tension that, that you have. That's, that's beyond anything. The anxiety that you have in like a three minute round is just different than everything else. But when I started thinking about MJ coming back and playing that end of that season before they get eliminated by Orlando to think that he basically admits, like, I was kind of like, you know, I wonder how much hoops he was playing. And he basically says none. So to not really have played any hoops for 18 months and then come back right into an NBA game, that might be more insane than just a fighter coming back to fight a few years later, even though I think fighting is tougher than everything. Yeah, because Ali was still training during that whole time and, you know, staying in shape and sparring people and stuff like that. The baseball body thing, we talked about it last week when we, um, when we did the Orlando thing. It's not, I don't think it was the reason they lost. They kind of gloss over the whole Horace Grant was on Orlando, wasn't on Chicago part. But, you know, he, he clearly wasn't a hundred percent himself and you could see it the next year when he comes back there, there were some things I, there were some like very, very deep nerdy basketball things that I took issue with, um, in this doc in the, in the last two, um, okay. like the, the Charlotte BJ Armstrong thing. I, I, it was first of all a little too much BJ Armstrong, uh, just in general, <laughs> it just was like, I'm sorry, no offense, BJ. But, you know, that Charlotte team, they were never beating the Bulls. And it's not like Jordan came out. It wasn't like the LeBradford Smith story where LeBrad, where that was all true. He, 
He was like, I'm going to score the same amount of points he scored against me. And then he basically did. He didn't like destroy Charlotte by like that. The box score um, does just doesn't back it up. Um, and then in the Seattle finals, it was the same thing where like he went, he just wasn't that good in that series. I, I think he really only had one really, really vintage MJ game. I think they were really tired by that point of the season and the Peyton stuff. I think I, I honestly think it was this simple. They lost, they were up three, nothing. They thought they were going to sweep. They blew game four. They were like, ah, we weren't focused. Then in game five, it was like, oh shit. Oh, the, the Seattle's actually better than we thought. They kind of lost their eye on that one. And then they just took care of business game six. I really don't think there's much more to the story, but he didn't play well in that series. And you know, I know what they have to do in documentaries and obviously my friend directed it. So it's not criticism because you're trying to present, you know, the narrative that's pushed along what you're doing, but the, he just wasn't that good in that series. He wasn't. And I, and I think that's kind of the pimple on the 96 bulls. The fact that if they sweep the Sonics to close out hammer game, game four, and he puts up 40, I actually think we would say they were the best team ever. It would be pretty unassailable at that point. They would add, I think, one playoff loss, and that's it. They would have been 87 and 11. I got to admit, I, I laughed a couple times on the Sonics thing um, because this entire, it's not even this documentary, but this MJ run is littered with opponents going, man, if we adjust, whether it's the Knicks yeah. in the Eastern Conference, and the Pistons thing is always kind of weird. Like when Isaiah has been doing these, these media hits going, well, no one likes me because I beat Bird, I beat Magic, I beat MJ. And you're like, you realize you're using the same defense of yourself or your defense of yourself is the same thing that MJ did. MJ ended up beating all of those guys that you're talking about and no one hates MJ like they don't like you. So that's not a great defense. And when you talk to, well, not us talking to Barkley, but when Barkley talks about it, Barkley really thought, oh, you know what? A game here, a game there, 93 is different. I'm sure Carl Malone feels that way about a bunch of different chances in 97 and 98. Um, Lakers fans that are like 91, that team was limping in there. Portland going, you know, we're actually, have we noticed a theme <laughs> that this, this Jordan guy even lets you, like a lot of these games are closer than maybe you would remember at the time. You're like, oh, that was another four-point game. What happened? Oh, 23 every single time closed you out. And as far as the Sonic series and Gary Payton, which I'd expect Gary Payton to say, hey, if I had guarded him earlier, maybe it goes a different way. It probably no. wasn't going to go a different way. When you're no. up 3-0, right. When you're up 3-0, you will not play as hard as the team that is down 3-0. It usually happens 2-0. And so also, we, the Bulls that happened to them, how many times over in the nineties, there must've been eight, nine times where all it was like a closeout game. Are, yeah. They would, they would always let up at the wrong times. It was the history of the team. So yeah, I didn't, uh, he, I, he was five. I think he was five for 19 in game six, the closeout game. But I just think that team was beat. And that was the, the other mild criticism I just have about the 96 Bulls season is I just don't. Nobody at any point talks about what it was like to watch Jordan and Pippen together during that comeback season when Jordan played the full 96 season, that 72 in season, which we talked about in the pod a couple of times. So I'm not going to rehash it too much, but they hit some higher being as a combo. They were really attuned in a way that I just haven't seen on a basketball court 
other than with those two guys. It, it LeBron and Wade had, they got close, especially like in the 27 game winning streak where at that point they were year three, they had the continuity and the, the way the chemistry they had, it started to get there. I think Steph and clay have had that to some degree, but I've never seen it like with Jordan and Pippen that year. And I wish somebody had said that in the doc. Cause it was really special. It was, it was the memory I have of seeing those guys in person was those two together and how sick they were on defense. The, the two Kawhi thing that we took that we joked about that analogy. So I don't know if you know this spoiler alert, but they end up winning the title in 98 too. That's how this doc ends. If that's how it ends, they beat the, you know how they led. It was like, what's going to happen with this Pacers series. Oh shit. Are the Pacers going to beat them? They actually, the Bills beat the Pacers. That's what happens. <laughs> uh, uh, but that's another one. I mean, add Reggie to the list where, you know, they're going, ah, you know, this series in 98. It's just, it's just kind of funny that you could probably pick 10 guys that all think that they were a bounce or two away from getting them and none of them, it's true. None of them and, get them. And that's, it's like the Pats thing. Like the Pats, yeah, you could argue they should have more Super Bowls. But they, also kind of left, they could have less Super Bowls. So the six is the right number. Uh, Alabama football. I could make cases for three or four more national titles, but they've also got a couple in there where they got in back as the four seed after a loss. So Alabama has like the right number. MJ's like the only guy in recent memory that actually has the number that go, well, like that's the only one you could say is maybe that Piston series in the migraine for Scotty where could they have right. seven, but does that mean he's exhausted against Phoenix in 93? Like Jordan's the one guy out of this whole group. And these we're talking like the handful of greatness in modern sports the last 30 years where you go, all these other guys have losses and wins that could have gone the other way. And, and he's the guy hearing about historically all these other players and say, oh, I wish I had, you know, I'm like, yeah, but none of you did. Well, you know who else was like that tiger? Tiger had yeah, like the Christa, the Christa Marco title, the Rocco Mediate title. Um, what was that? He had a third one where, what was the, who did, who did he beat Rocco Mediate in 2008? Was that the U.S. Open? He Rocco Mediate, Christa Marco. There was a third one. There was the U.S. Amateur one that he won. That was U.S. Open. Then the, uh, the Chinese guy, Y.E. Yang. Remember that one? Or did that guy beat him? But Tiger had a bunch of these too, and, and get house on the line. Yeah, hold on. Coming up next, I'm going to forget every Tiger title. Uh, <laughs> but he had the same thing where he he would get into these situations where it's like, all right, it's me versus Tiger with four holes to go, and you're just like, ah, you're fucked. Tiger, yeah, totally. You. No, you're going to lose. You're going to lose, and that's that's actually what was amazing to deliver that many times. And it is a good point. Um, I, you know, what I used to love was the the tiger stuff where you go. Yeah, but he's never come back. He's never had the comeback. <laughs> go, wait, wait, what are we doing? Like I just, there's some guys that you just go, you know, I'm going to back off on any criticisms here. I'm not going to like come up with, with new things here. And I remember working with a guy in radio and we're talking years and years ago and we would start up these segments and it was always frustrating to me when people would say the same stuff over and over again. I'm not a Tiger fan. I just find it more interesting when he's in the mix on Sunday. Be like, holy shit. Like, you should trademark that. Sounds no like you're said, a Tiger fan. Yeah. yeah. No, yeah no, no one's ever said that. But this guy I worked with would say, you know, he's great. But, you know, he's never really had the pressure on him to, you know, have to come back from a few strokes down going into the final. And I was like, what? Like, you want to do that segment? And I was new. So I'd be like, yeah, no, it sounds, sounds like a great segment. I'm going to lay out a little bit more on that one, though. We, uh, 
coming up, we're going to talk about UFC and a couple other things. And then near the, at the second half of this podcast, we're going to do rewatchables. The 97 finals. I forced Rosillo to watch. Uh, Five jazz too, games. Way too much of the 97 jazz. Uh, so we're hitting <laughs> all that first. Uh, let's take a break. So a few days ago, I fixed my background for my zoom. Cause I'm doing these uh, podcasts in my little pool house here. And I just, I, I needed to step it up. I had put a lot of stuff in my office at work and I had to just bring it back, bring, bring back the goods. So I made my wall. I put some of my best stuff behind me, including my book of basketball poster, my white shadow, Ken Howard poster. And one of my favorites, my Miller Lite 1986 NBA champions poster it's got Tommy Heinsohn, Red Arback, Casey Jones, and Sam Jones. I think I have the only copy. I don't know. It's very possible. But uh, one of the reasons I love that poster is because eventually the Miller Lite became my favorite beer. Listen, during this time of social distancing, connecting with friends over beer today looks pretty different as the original light beer on my wall right now. Miller Lite has always been there to bring people together in real life through Miller time, a moment for people to come together in real life to connect over a few beers. But- Miller time gets a little tough and can't be with your people. It can be enjoyed with your people though. That's the thing. Just do a zoom, do Google hangout, do whatever you have to do to see your friends. Maybe do a little social distancing on your lawn, six feet apart. Miller light is the beer that makes Miller time possible. Miller light, the original light beer that tastes great and is less filling, which means it won't get in the way of enjoying time with your people. Tastes great. Goes down smoothly. It's the original light beer while you're home. Enjoy a classic. Available for delivery today. Celebrate responsibly. Miller Brewing Company, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, 96 calories and 3.2 carbs per 12 ounces. All right, we're going to audible to UFC was last night. First real live sporting event we've had since the quarantine. I was fascinated to see how it was going to work. The only real thing we've been able to see has been uh, WWE and AEW, the, the pro wrestling, pro wrestling feeds so much off the crowds. My assumption heading into this UFC 249, which I dabble, I'll get some <laughs> pay-per-views. My uh, <laughs> best man at my wedding, Jeff Gallo, huge UFC guy. And I, I always just text him before every pay-per-view, should I get this? And he'll tell me, and I'll, I'll get like four out of the 12 or four out of the 15, whatever the big ones are. Um, so have you I was been? Have you ever been to one? I've been. I, I've done the whole thing. I've dabbled. I I know what's going on. Uh, so my my thought going into it was that the crowds were super important, and there was a little wrestling element to it, where the guys feeding off the crowd and like for knockdowns or knockouts or anything like, and the guy jumping on the octagon, the top and posing for everybody. I was shocked by how much I liked the no fans. I, I really thought it was compelling. I liked her in the corners. I liked her in the punches and kicks. I was as riveted as I've ever been by any UFC product. What well, you're a bigger fan than I am. What'd you think? Loved it. And I saw your tweet and I didn't want to do the thing where, you know how, like once you become kind of friends with a guy and you see a tweet, we were like, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> oh, the pro wrestling. Go. Yeah. You were like, man, the wrestling didn't play as well. The UFC has been much better. And I wanted to go, well, you think because like, one's actually fighting and that's the product the product is the two guys actually trying to fight each other and you're right if you're just looking at an entertainment standpoint that's why i didn't send anything because it wasn't like that vicious it was just the wrestling part of it is the whole thing like if the focus is just on two guys in an empty arena it's you know it's it's not as cartoon it's weird to be cartoonish when 
the fighting isn't real and you can't really even compare it to the UFC. I mean, the UFC ultimately is like, how are these two guys going to handle each other? And the wrestling component has so many other things that it's leaning on for it to be this big event. So I'm not even guessing wrestling. I just think they're so different. The reason I did that was because it was just so weird to watch wrestling with no fans. I couldn't get past it. And, you know, it has some disadvantages because they're not actually fighting, but the grunts, the put, the, the kicks, the the pounding on the mat, things like that. The sound effects were way better, but it just it felt off the whole time. Watching the UFC made me realize, like, do we even really necessarily need the fans at these things? We're so getting wait a <laughs> we're getting so many other we're getting so many other elements in this telecast that I found so much more compelling than just cutting to a section of fans screaming. So you've been now, it, this is funny because it ties into all the MJ stuff, but now the debate is, you know, one of the many debates that are out there is the Chicago Bulls entrance in the nineties. Is that the greatest entrance in sports? And it's hard to kind of go against that. Um, I think there's some college football stadiums that are right up there, if not better than it, but it's kind of hard to argue. Like we're not talking about MJ being better than an entire college football program, but there's some stuff in the South that I would put up against anything. Yeah. Uh, but Conor McGregor coming out, and seeing him live when I went to go see him in Vegas once. And first of all, I mean, this doesn't count as the entrance, but to see the Irish goons, and I mean that as a compliment, I mean, they are just another level. Like, you think you see guys get drunk at SEC football games? Like, these guys are, there was like 10 or 12 dudes who were arrested before they even got in. <laughs> and to have a place be that pro-Irish, which is crazy because it's the States, and the guy that, um, McGregor was fighting when I went was was Mendez, who's like a West Coast guy anyway. And you've got this Irish him right into Biggie. Like that is that's unbelievable. So like those entrances are so important. But then again, once the fight happens, it's all about the fight. So I mean, it was a great card. Gaethje is is this guy like he's one fight of the night, like basically every time he goes out there. And the beating he put on Tony Ferguson, who hasn't lost in forever, and the fact that Ferguson, I mean, it was just as entertaining to see Ferguson take every single punch, and then they finally call the fight at the end because Ferguson's insane. But I I just think that it's it's so much more of just two guys with everything on the line. And I thought that Anik, who's going to be on with me to, um, Tuesday, John Anik's going to be on with me Tuesday, with Rogan in D.C. Like they were kind, yeah, they, they kind of were all like, buying into the idea that like this is weird and then they noticed that some of the fighters could hear what they were saying and then fighters started saying in the post-fight stuff like i could hear some of the stuff dc was saying about what i should be doing hardy even said that so you lose the theater right I, the coolest entrance i've been in person for was when R ricky hatton fought floyd mayweather which i went to and when he came out and he the same thing was the irish goons like just half the stadium losing their fucking minds flags singing and the theater and the entrance, you're right. It's one of the best things with UFC. I'm saying the stuff we gained, we, we it's a it's a loss gain thing. We gained some really cool stuff. I the the fighters in the post fight interviews talking about how they could hear the announcers and Greg Hardy saying, "Yeah, I heard Daniel Cormier was saying telling me how to avoid those leg kicks or whatever he said." And so I decided to change my strategy. I was like, "Oh my god, the guy heard the announcers and." Mid-fight. So I, I did a tweet last night about who, what NBA team would be the most affected by that. It's clearly the 76ers. <laughs> I wanted I wanted to really do a Brett Brown, like a really mean Brett Brown tweet, but the pandemic, I held off. But it was like, it, if you're a Sixers fan, would you rather have Jeff Van Gundy and Mark Jackson and the players listening to him or Brett Brown? 
I'd rather take the ESPN crew. I, I'll go with Van Gundy. That's for yeah. Sure. Um, Van Gundy wins out of those right, three at least. Right. But, right. So that I was like a great. That. That, that tweet I liked. That tweet was great because then I started thinking about it the whole time because there were some Celtics games in the early Patino era. We got to Patino in record time on this pod, but yeah. where that's exactly what it was. It's exactly what it was. Well, it would so be quiet. He, here's what was crazy about the Ferguson fight, which is one of the most brutal sporting events I've ever watched in my entire life. I mean, it was really like you're you're worried this guy's gonna die, and then and then his history is he's the boogeyman, and it's just even in the post fight interview, he's completely eloquent and it's putting his thoughts together, and you're just like you just got punched in the head 120 times, <laughs> and you're, you're thinking about Gaethy's. How do you say his name? I'm gonna fuck it up Gaethy. every single Gaethy. Yeah, Gaethy. Yeah, I want to call him Gaethy so bad because, it, but it's it, the spelling versus the pronunciation is so off. But Gaethy's, I, I kept thinking like, well, what if he breaks his hand? Like, how many times can you punch somebody flush in the face before you like fracture a knuckle? Before you have a hairline, something before your hand starts to swell, because these were all like plus shots. That the history of his career, these guys either go down or get wobbled. With half of those, Ferguson's just going forward. And, but anyway, Ferguson got point, wobbled a couple times where you're like, okay, he's done. Like he was doing some leg stuff where you thought both of his hamstrings blew out at the exact same time, or like somebody just right. went, you know, Carl Spackler on the old Achilles in the back. And I thought, oh, he's done, he's done, and then he recovers. Like he's a mutant. And I, I have so many of these fights where I'll look at the guy that loses and gets worked where I have just as much respect for him as the guy that won. But Gaethje's, totally. that, Gaethje's that guy. Everybody's kind of been talking him up a little bit more and more. I mean, Anik, again, who I said we're going to have on, when I did, who do you think is the toughest human being you've ever come across in the UFC? Last year, he picked him. So I was like, wow. And I, I sent that tweet out last night going, Anik called this a while ago. He's been really good on that stuff. I lost. I had a parlay. With uh, the heavyweight who knocked the guy out in 20 seconds. Nagano. Nagano with uh, with um, Diaz, who I ended up losing that one. But then I rallied back. I chased with Gaethje. Two to one underdog in this. But, you know, with the no fans and just with the sounds of the fight, it actually started to get really brutal. It was 25 minutes of that, you know? And, and you're getting no crowd reactions at all. And I was thinking, like, first of all, if there's ever been... Um, a big spotlight shown on the brutality of how tough some of these fights are. Like, here's your 25 minutes right there. And the second thing is like, it actually probably helped him. There wasn't a crowd because there were times when I think he would have tried to chase the knockout, which is kind of what Ferguson wants, right? He wants, he wants you to get super excited. And then all of a sudden in the fourth or fifth rounds, you're done. But because there was no crowd urging him on, he was able to just you know, he, it was almost like watching Jordan and these Jordan games were doing. He just had command of of every moment of that fight. I thought it was an incredible performance. I loved it. And I'm I'm just glad that you know, I think people watching Gaethje for the first time, you're like, well, who is this guy? And you're like, actually, all of it. Like, he didn't even have to go to the ground last night. And he's, he's great at that, too. Um, his left hand, like, you can't believe he's, I don't know, maybe he is left-handed, but I mean, he's set up traditionally the whole time, and he's hitting these clean left hooks. He must have hit Ferguson with 50 left hooks. I, and I'm serious, like, every time clean. they're clean, compact, they're not, like, the only time he would really get wild, and then his corner goes, hey, you got to dial it back like 10%, and that was the thing that even the announcers were talking about as he was getting into the octagon, is that, you know, everything, he kind of has this wild fury about him, but it's sort of controlled. 
And then to hear the corner go, hey, just dial back some of these haymakers here. Like, just give me 10% less on these. But then you have Ferguson, whose body is just sort of like, Ferguson has this body of a guy that would suck at a pickup basketball game, but if he guarded you, you're like, okay, he's got these weird big shoulders and really long arms, and then his movement is unlike anybody else, and you know he's he's just different. Some of these guys have been fighting for a while. Once their chin is gone, it's almost like a running back who's just gotten hit too many times, where all of a sudden it's like, how come Ricky Williams can get tackled by the ankle now? And you're like, well, right. that's because you know when Ricky Williams was awesome, and then I'll never forget like watching Ricky Williams. All of a sudden, you're like, okay, he's done. Like he's just he's going down every single time, and it happens. To, I mean, that's just what happens to fighters. And, and tight Ferguson's ends. been doing this. Yeah, tight ends is a good one too. You know. Ferguson reminds me of those guys in the Kumite in the montage, the beginning of Bloodsport, where they all have the different weird fighting styles. Where <laughs> there's like that one guy who's just on the ground hopping around, and there's like the big bear hug guy. And then it's like, here's Ferguson. He has no style. He's doing spin moves for no reason. He's falling on the ground. He's going left, right. And you know, he ends up nailing. Gaty with the with the uppercut at the end of the second round, which in my opinion, the uppercut if the guy's leaning forward and you land the uppercut correctly is the most devastating punch of all punches. It's I have that in pole position and he hit it perfectly. <laughs> Gaethje was leaning forward the way you'd want it to. And I have no idea how he didn't get knocked out. You should get knocked out on that every time. I don't care who you are. I don't care how tough you are. That's a knockout. And he, and he just, just in admitted he was fine. I didn't understand it. That was the Tyson thing. When Tyson was right, when it was prime Tyson, it was this compact left to right head movement. You couldn't really square him up. And then he got underneath you and it was that uppercut. And that's why, you know, whenever anybody would say like, well, Tyson really struggled with some of the bigger guys, but like not when he was younger. I mean, these guys were like big trees falling all over the place. So yeah, I mean, once Tyson had probably been as unhealthy as any professional fighter we've ever seen and things caught up to him. But early on, Tyson used to chop all these big guys down so whenever anybody would talk like Tyson versus the other great heavyweights, it'd be like, oh, he would have a trouble. Look, he'd have trouble with Ali because it's Ali. But Ali, I don't know how we ended up in this whole thing. Maybe it's because all the LeBron MJ stuff. But yeah, Gaethje watching him just go back to that. Like, I, I just was double checking. He was an all-American wrestler, and he never even went to the ground against Ferguson. So that's where the, you know, some of the other guys that he'd be lining up against where you're like, you know, he didn't even have to show that part of him, yet he could stand up and exchange blows and just pepper Ferguson for a half an hour and not even have to do some of the other stuff. Tyson's uppercut is one of my like three or four favorite boxing weapons. Like I always love the Frazier coming out of the crouch left hook. Ali, Ali's the greatest fighter of all time. It was like his 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 kryptonite. It was just how how it was thrown, the way he launched forward, it would just land on Ali. And this even in the first Ali fight, it was like peak Ali. And it, he would still get him with it. He just couldn't figure it out. I love that one. And then the the Hearn straight right off the jab, most memorably in the Duran fight, which I st is still my probably my favorite knockout. That's your favorite out of all those. I, it's just like it just flush. And Duran was like, he's the all time. You know, nobody did that to him. No, he's toast, and he's it, like and toast. He, he dies. His literally <laughs> spirit leaves his body. It's unbelievable. <laughs> what um, about what about the Mickey Ward head body head? Oh, that's a good one. I like it. Uh, what what I really thought was notable about the UFC last night, other than I just enjoyed having sports and unpredictability and people watching a live sporting event, not knowing how it was going to end again and all these different things, was 
it made me wonder what the NBA would look like with no fans if they took some of the lessons from the UFC pay-per-view. Most notably, if you if you had the mics picking up the sound of the game and the guys talking to each other and the grunts and people muttering at each other and swearing at each other and all that stuff, I don't know if the NBA would have the balls to do that, to to basically remove the trampoline from the game so that if somebody falls off the tightrope and somebody calls somebody a motherfucker or what, whatever they would be worried about in that situation, maybe you'd have a tape delay, maybe you could bleep it, whatever. But if you could hear the conversation on the court, it would honestly be like what it was like to go to a game in the 80s and 90s before they started playing music. Because before they started blaring the music during the actual game, if you're sitting close enough, which I was fortunate enough because my dad had good seats, you could hear the people talking, you could hear the coaches, um, all that stuff. And I do feel like it would be an asset for the NBA games. Do you think the NBA would ever have the balls to actually do that? Well, hey, now you're pitching something. I was pitching this to my roommates on the couch over 20 years ago where <laughs> I was like, there's got to be a way where we could mic everybody and then maybe have it just be on HBO, which is kind of what the NFL has done anyway. I would love it. You would love it. I think all of us as NBA fans would love it. But I think a lot like those coaches, corner, the huddle, the reason they all suck you know, for a while there, I'm like, Scotty Brooks just says rebound at the top of his voice every single time out. And you're like, no, it's edited so that nothing strategic is given away and nothing is given away that makes any of these guys look bad. And I'm worried that the NBA with mic access in whatever version of the NBA we get, if we're going to get it, um, I don't think they want us hearing, confirming all the stuff we know that these guys say to each other and some of the names they call each other. So I don't, I don't think the NBA wants that, even though we're going to be very entertained. And as I've thought about it in the UFC model, like people have to accept that the NBA does come back in whatever versions that we've heard kicked around. I'm not going to be a guy. I'm just don't complain about it because it it's going to look bad. You know, other than the uniforms, it's going to look like AAU stuff. Like when you were watching these rewatchables that we're doing and thinking of no one in there for playoff games. Like I know you brought it up and you're like, this is going to be terrible. It's it's going to be ne uh, a necessity. You know, <laughs> like it, it, but I get it. Like it's not going to be great, and I don't think it's. I think it's kind of a waste of time complaining about it. I think it could be cool if they uh, open the door on the sound. But what you just talked about, like I lived through it when we did the courtside show for HBO in 2018. You know, a show that we had everything in place. And I thought it was a really good show, except for the piece where we just couldn't get the real behind the scenes stuff. They just wouldn't give it up. And, and one of the reasons was, I think like about 10 days before we started filming that show, it was the, for the 2018 finals. Kerr had had that moment with Durant when he pulled Durant over and he's like, let me tell you a Michael Jordan story. It was during a game and it was like a minute long clip. And, um, and it became a big thing on social media and, and Kerr was furious that they used that clip. He's like, why, why is that on the internet? Like that's me talking to my player. I didn't want that to become a public thing. And then after that, they really cracked down. And that's why if you're, you know, for the people listening, when they when they see the behind the scenes NBA stuff, and it's like we used to have a lot of Scotty Brooks going, "Come on, guys, dig in, rebound, dig in. yeah, let's go, hey, Box out, let's pick up the intensity." That's because they're that's all we're gonna get. We're never gonna get the real shit. We're never gonna get the stuff like that. There were so many great moments of the UFC thing yesterday. Even the like Greg Hardy, he, we thought there might be something wrong with the guy he was fighting with his foot. Like well, he stopped throwing he any punches. Yeah. Yeah. And he missed the <laughs> kick. Like he was clearly hurt, but we didn't know for sure. And the announcers were calling it out. And then at the fight ended, normally you'd hear the crowd cheering, but we could actually hear them talking. And he's like, 
my foot's fucked up. My, my, my leg hurt. And Greg's like, oh, man. So, and he's like, oh, fuck. Like, Greg Hardy was mad. He wanted a better fight. But that's a moment we never would have had if you could hear the crowd. So I, I don't know. I thought there was a lot of good stuff. I also, we should point out, um, Joe Rogan was a Pantheon performance by him. Being no gloves, no mask. He's touching everybody. He's walking in splattered blood. He just could not have been less afraid of the elements. I loved it. All right. It, now, it, was, it was a macho performance by Joe. He really, really was uh, over the top. Yeah, that was um, that was something they weren't going to do. They weren't going to have those guys wearing masks. No, they just weren't. So I don't I don't I actually think it might have been something like you're not wearing masks. <laughs> But he was he was touching everybody though. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I, at they one point, I thought he was just going to rub his hands in the blood or like drink a spit bucket or something <laughs> just to like really push it over the top. But what's funny is they were all spread across. They said they weren't sitting together when they did the announcing. They said they were in different parts around the ring, which I thought was but yeah. Then when they, they did the stand up, they're right next to each other. That right, because there was some video they were running back, and it was kind of like a, the triple box deal where it was Anik and Cormier, and then. And then Rogan, and then once he got in there, and then there was a post later on. The Pettis Cerrone fight was good, and you know it's been a, you know it been what seven years since they had fought, I believe, and uh, Pettis got this one again too. But then they were hanging out later with Pettis with the Coors Light, and Cerrone with a Bud Can, and they were like arm in arm. And I was waiting for somebody to be like, "Hey, you know, guys, like, oh, you can hang out." And then you're like, "Well, we just rolled around in each other's bodily fluids for." you know, an hour. So, right. Well, not an hour, but you know what I'm saying? Yeah, we're good. <laughs> if we had anything, we gave it to each other. It was a big night for Methuen. Yeah. Yeah. That dude, that dude's nose was caved in. He, he couldn't have been happier. He's just like, yeah, I won. I don't care. His nose had a big dent in it. It's just pouring blood. It's like, yeah, it was a great fight. I had a good time. These guys are a different breed. They really are. They're different breed. Most people would be like, my nose is caved in. I should probably go see a doctor. He's like, I'll do this interview for 10 minutes. I'm good. Yeah, they're different in the sense too. Like, I think it was the Cerrone fight. I forget which one. I don't know. Whatever. And it happens all the time. So this isn't exactly something new. But seriously, like one guy's dropping uh, like a, a kick, like a leg kick on the guy's head and the, and the bell rings. And one second later, they're laughing and like, yeah. You know, if I had just gotten kicked in the head and then serious, I'm not exaggerating, two seconds later. So the second left on the clock, Bell, second after the fight, and then it's like high five and laughing at the guy who just kicked you. It's just such another level. And then, yeah, the Methuen guy, Cater, he, uh, you know, salt of the earth. He just loved those guys. Because then as soon as the fight's over, big win for him. People didn't think he was going to win that one. He's like, yeah, you know, and uh, the first responders. Hey, give it up to them. Anyone <laughs> at any of the medical services, medical devices, you know, the T, you know, straight shooters. Well, we also had a Fall River guy who lost. Fall River never loses. Just if if you picked like what three Massachusetts cities are gonna have a UFC fighter, my top three would have been Lowell, Methuen, Fall River. Probably my top. Probably would have been my just go-to picks, not knowing anything. So we had two or three. I didn't think we had a Lowell guy in there. No. 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 I I mean, uh, there's uh trying to think if those are the top three towns. I think people would say Brockton. Dorchester's like, I don't have time to train. Like, I'll fight, but I don't want to have to jog. <laughs> um, 
let's uh let's take a break because I want to talk about just quickly some of the NBA news from Thursday and Friday because uh it's gonna be the return of pessimistic Bill right after this. Hey, if you've been dealing with acne, redness, dark spots, or wrinkles, finding treatment that works can be complicated. You need skincare that actually performs. But getting started can be overwhelming. Thankfully, there's a solution. Roman makes it convenient to get customized prescription skincare that really performs. Just grab your phone or computer, complete a free online consultation, and you'll hear back from a U.S. licensed physician within 24 hours of appropriate. A doctor will prescribe a custom blended treatment based on your skin type and priorities. You'll receive your custom skincare treatment with free two-day shipping. You also get free unlimited follow-ups with your doctor if you need to make a change to your treatment or have any questions. We've been with Roman really since the get-go. I love that they keep adding good stuff. With Roman, there are no commitments. You can cancel anytime. Go to GetRoman.com slash Bill for a free online visit and start your new skincare routine today. What can't Roman do? GetRoman.com slash Bill. Eligibility requirements and additional terms may apply. All right. Pessimistic Bill is here. Reading between the lines, talking to some people. <laughs> I'm sure you talked to some people too. I, I'm pretty discouraged about the NBA coming back. Ultimately, who cares? It, like, like I just want the pandemic to go away and everything to get better and, and probably caring too much about a lost NBA season should be the least of our concerns. But I really did think they were going to figure this out. And the mood coming out of that Friday was pretty grim where there's just so many variables and it doesn't seem like they can get a handle on all of it. They can't agree on anything. And the only things they seem like they can really agree on is if it works, it's got to be the bubble situation in Orlando or Vegas, which we've been talking about on this podcast for the last month. Um, other than that, it doesn't seem like they figured out anything. And the reality is they're running out of time. It's May 10th. And if, if they don't figure out some sort of plan by the end of this month, I don't, then at some point you're going to get, you're going to be going against football. The longer you push this back, which if you're going to do that, why even do that? Assuming football comes back or you could say nothing's going to come back. But I really thought that Friday phone call was going to be the beginning of movement and it's not. And it wasn't, and I don't know where we stand. Okay, so let me follow up with you. Like, what are the things that you're hearing post Friday that put you into? I don't think you're wrong, by the way, at all. But I want you to stay on this and share more with us on why you're so deflated after Friday's call. The players' union was being more assertive than I expected, which is fine. But um, there's just a lot of agendas, and. I, it's hard for me to figure out how those agendas are going to align in a real way over the next couple of weeks, because I think you have competing agendas, even with the owners. I think you have different owners who feel differently about the pandemic and what we should do. And oh, well, you definitely do. First of all, I mean, yeah, we definitely, we do. can't get five people to agree. Never mind 30. Yeah. I think in a weird way, I thought the owners would be more of like uh, an LA, New York bubble type of situation with how they saw things the same way. And, but it's not. And, and I think you have some guys who are like, well, fuck this. If we're coming back, let's play it in the arena. And why can't we have limited fans? And then you have other people like, it, this is wrong. We're going to get all these tests and we're going to be taking tests away from other people. It's not worth the PR hit. And they, I just don't feel like they're off of the ground floor of a lot of these discussions. I don't know what they've been doing the last two months. I know, I know they're being careful. I know they're trying to learn as much as they possibly can. But now we're at the point where 
at least a plan should be in place. If we feel good about this plan, how are we going to do it? How many tests would we need? Can we proceed? How many teams should we have? What is the exact number of people we can put into this uh, little bubble, et cetera, et cetera. And it doesn't seem like we're close. I was reading this stuff and I tweeted about it. Ramona Shelburne talking about all of the different angles of this. And I hope Ramona didn't think I was going at her on, on the piece because I did quote tweet it because I kind of was disappointed by Michelle Roberts' quote when it was talking about, you know, quarantined bubbles and, you know, everybody's going to go to one city and play it out of there. And she said, you know, that's like incarceration, which is a horrible, horrible analogy. And if you are the head of any players association, that position is combative by nature. You are always going to be. All the baseball guys, like, hey, you guys screwed us over for decades. We're coming at you. But then it got to a point where it was like Donald Fair didn't even want anything to do with any kind of compromise. You go back to some of his early PED proposals on the player side, they were laughable. And that was actually one of the biggest reasons why it was hard to even get any testing once the owners decided they wanted the testing. Um, there's all sorts of NFL stuff. People, Gene Upshaw, yeah, he's too in with the owners. He doesn't rep us enough. The Billy Hunter stuff was a mess, which I know maybe you'll get to. But Michelle Roberts... And it's not just about that quote, but I felt like right now, again, my opinion would be that when everybody's trying to figure out how to get any games back, that you have to have more of an open mind and that maybe now isn't the time to be combative. And even she had asked about, hey, what does the CBA mean? What does it mean for paychecks? And Silver's answer was amazing. He's like, hey, sorry, but there's no provision in the CBA about a global pandemic. There's no clause. There's no page I can refer you to. This is all unprecedented stuff. So even though I understand the nature of the position to basically say, well, the owners say, you know, blue and we got to just think it's red. Um, I was disappointed by her quote. I was kind of disappointed by her whole approach. And I find Michelle Roberts fascinating in that she never is criticized, really. Like there's always kind of rumblings. And if it's from the team side, like no one's ever going to want to hear their complaints because she's the opposition. But I don't know. Look, I think some people are just straight up afraid to criticize Michelle Roberts. I know I am at times, even though I've criticized other player reps, um, not just fundamentally, because I'm usually more pro player, but I was disappointed in her quote. And then I started thinking about her more and more. And I go, I don't, I don't know that anybody raves about her, but there's never really been anybody that's that's laid it out. And I think there's some people who just think she's checked out now at this point, too, because she's off the job pretty soon. She's been under the radar from a job performance standpoint. There's not a lot of arguments about her for or against. This is was is a chance for her to distinguish herself in some way. I've I've never heard anybody be that impressed by her. I, I don't want to, you know, crush her, but I've never Never heard one person go, you know who's unbelievable? That Michelle Roberts. Maybe it's impossible to find somebody in that job. I think this was a chance to distinguish herself, and she didn't. But I think the the overriding factor right now with all of these people publicly, and I'm talking about players, owners, union people, networks, they're going to need a bunch of tests if they're going to do this. That's one thing. All of them are afraid of the PR backlash to that. Totally. Yeah. It's that is paralyzing. The second piece is that Trump has met with with Silver and you know a bunch of the other commissioners and some of the owners and I think Adam out of anybody is really hesitant to to make it seem to his players that Trump and all the baggage that he has that we don't have to go into um bullied him into coming back. 
and he doesn't want to, want to even be accused of that. Because you have to remember right now, Adam in 2020 is basically still throwing a no-hitter from when he took over the league. And uh, and he hasn't really had a huge L. He hasn't had a huge loss. And this, like having players come at him, being like, you just want us to come back because Trump wanted that. There's just doors being opened now for him to get criticized, for the lead to get criticized, for the owners to get criticized that they haven't really dealt with in six years since the Sterling thing. And I think just everybody's being really, really, really careful. I don't think everyone can agree on the right circumstances, uh, the right pieces, the agenda to really care about. And the reality is they're running out of time. They just are. They're running out of time. Yeah, they're absolutely running out of time. Unless football is delayed, then you go, wait a minute, can we... Can we work together with the NFL? But I don't know if the leagues are sitting here strategically going, hey, how are you going to do it? Hey, like, again, I think something you've pointed out where I think everybody just wants baseball to kind of say they're back so then everybody can kind of follow the lead. And then I wonder if it's going to turn into one of those deals because I'm definitely afraid of whatever version of a second spike, if it exists, if it could happen. I'm open to the suggestion that it could happen, right? Um, but would it, would it be a guy test positive and then that means you're – justified in testing all your players and then that guy just goes home and you keep playing because the first version of it rudy gobert's testing positive okay no basketball no hockey no baseball all right like everybody shut it down no college sports and it was instant if it takes so much planning and so much going into ramping this thing back up is the version of it like yeah okay a guy tested positive for coronavirus and we're just going to get him away from everybody and test everybody else the other thing on the testing too uh, the PR part is massive. Every league that I've talked to has brought it up multiple times. But then I look at like a Nate Silver had a tweet about testing results that actually looked like it was a really positive thing. And then I made the mistake of going through and reading all the comments. And I'm talking like verified people that are covering this all over the place. So as we're sitting here talking about the test, I've heard people say, well, you can just run a temperature gauge on everybody else. So you're not using tests for people that are asymptomatic or you know, not showing any symptoms, asymptomatic if you're positive. But uh, I, I don't, I don't know what to believe on that one. Like, I don't know what to like. I know there's one article I could read that convinces me of the temperature thing, and then other people are like, oh, actually, no, the temperature you can have it, you can have the antibodies, not have a high temperature, but then that means you know all these different things. So I can't imagine all the different factors these leagues are trying to figure out by navigating through all of this stuff. And yes, after Friday's thing, I'm more pessimistic, like you are. It was also crazy to just hear them come out and actually say what we've heard people whisper and talk and things that we had a good guess that it was going to play out this way, but to hear them actually acknowledge it, that the attendance is 40% of their revenue. You know, you can fudge those numbers any way you want. I know to a certain degree you can't, but they're pretty careful about not just coming out and saying a round number that somebody can latch onto like that. And they did. They're like, we're, our business is down 40% now because of this. like just starting with no fans in the arenas. Then the second piece was, we don't think we're going to have fans in our arenas, even for the 2020, 21 season for them to acknowledge that. Now you're talking about, all right, well, what happens if, you know, my dad gets his Celtics season ticket bill or I get my Clippers season ticket bill. They, they've just come out and said, we're basically not going to have fans at games next year. We don't think. So how are you going to bill your fans? Like, that's one of the ways that they get money up front. You can put the money away for six months. That's why you see uh, NBA season ticket holders, they get, you know, buy playoff 
play, buy your playoff tickets, but you also have to buy next season's tickets and a layaway plan or pay all up front. And you get this off because they're trying to get that money in April for games that don't start until the end of October. They're just putting it away for eight months. It's there's no games. You're paying, you're paying way ahead of time for entertainment that you're not even getting yet. Are they going to make us do that? There's all of these things. This is why I I'm just getting more and more pessimistic because these are massive decisions. It's not just one decision. It's like 12, 15 and everybody's not on the same page. Yeah. And, that's, uh, that's kind of what we learned on Friday. I mean, that, that's why both of us are kind of sitting here and be like, man, and, and back to the Michelle Roberts part of it too, where I would go like, Hey, I thought the players wanted to come back and play, but the way she sounded, it's as if, okay, if you guys don't want to make any compromises, like are all the players good with losing the rest of their money? Or are they thinking, Hey, the checks have kept coming in because the owners haven't cut that off yet even though the revenue is taking the hit. But I guess even with the 40%, and I think the 40% number is the entire thing with them. Yeah, it is. Uh, so it's not, it's not necessarily 40% of what you were expecting to make this season. It's 40% of the remaining stuff. I'm I talking about it's math, really for next right. season. Yeah. Right. But that's why I would have thought it's some version. I mean, not losing the TV money is still the most important thing. I would think more than anything. So I, you know, I, I get that it's it's some kind of loss, but I can't imagine owners are going, well, if I'm not going to make any attendance money, I'm okay losing it all. And that's the same for who the players. Was, who was the one who said, we, I think it was Silver, who was like, we want to keep best of seven for every round if we yeah. do this. Yeah. I was shocked by that. I, I actually think that's dumb. It, this, to me, this is a chance to rectify something that was dumb in the first place, doing first round best of seven. Make it so that, you know, if you win, th if you get a 3-0 lead in the series, you win the series. So whether you're up 3-0 or 4-1, series is over. Um, I, I, was ha I, I thought one of the benefits of this whole thing would be that we wouldn't have these stupid first round series dragging on when one team is clearly better than the other team. You can get away from that, but... Um, I what? don't know. <laughs> I hate the single elimination thing. I I'm done with reading everybody's proposals on, and I get it. Everybody's I am bored. Too. Right. And I, I love just, it too, but I'm I, even, I'm right. done with it. All right. And you, you're like the king of proposals. You'll, yeah, you'll I'm, come I'm up out. with stuff for that. No one cares about, but give me, give me your five worst teams to win a single elimination NBA championship. Oh, if they just did it that way. Oh <laughs> yeah. You have like, to win four games. Who would make people the maddest? Yeah, you though. Give me yours. Like, who's the number one of all the viable oh, teams? Oh, if the Rockets won the title <laughs> that way, I'd be out of my mind. I'd be so mad. <laughs> That's the only right answer, first of all. Because uh, I, what do you do? Do you like? I don't even know what to do with that one. Before we get back, let's let's hold off on talking about what we would do with the Rockets winning four games that would supposed to count as an NBA championship if they just did single elimination, which they're not going to do. But if LeBron got it. And then all the MJ people will be like, that doesn't even count. That's not yeah, even that's a, a fourth half. ring. It's a half that's not title. even a half. They wouldn't even yeah. give him that. Um, <laughs> Giannis is first. That would feel like, is Giannis now arrived? Is he, is he, gonna, is he on the path now to be one of the all-time greats for winning a single elimination? Oh, I, I, I think Philly would be the number two make people the maddest. Oh, that's a good one. Brett Brown, People championship go nuts. coach. Yeah, yeah, fuck this. Yeah. There's no way they would have won a series. Philly might be worse than Houston, the reaction that you get. Well, then you'd also have all the Philly people getting mad about the reaction. And that actually could lead to a civil war. You yeah, can, see, that's, yeah. that's right. Because people wouldn't want to give... I'm trying to think who would... with like 
which city winning would hold like would the public hold back the most recognition? I actually think the Lakers are high on this list because the LeBron factor of people saying like that's not really your fourth ring, so that's part of it. Philly would be so nasty because they'd be saying, "Oh, you fucking idiots who said Ben and and B can't yeah. play together." It's like, well, they actually don't like each other, but that's fine. Yeah, you guys, yeah, they won fine. four games. Yeah, Ben's trying to leave. Uh, Clippers, <laughs> Clippers would make people <laughs> mad too. Like, really? This is your first title? You just won four games with your instant team? And you had no fans anyway, so this they, they're actually the biggest winners if there's no fans in the playoffs. There's definitely a Miami thing, though. If Miami did it and they had like a four-day parade and then Wade was given an honorary ring and then it was another documentary that was six parts long or something, and then you're like, geez, guys. Can I tell you a story about uh, my greatest sports moment of the last two months? <laughs> yes, so my, my son has been playing a lot of 2K, really likes it, really getting into it. He has a, my team, all this stuff. And he's always trying to get me to play. And I'm like, I don't really, I'm not a really a big video basketball game guy. Like I, I'm like, I like football. I like golf. I like driving games. I'm like the basketball. Yeah. So he's like, what are you afraid? He's doing that whole thing. I'm like, oh, you want some young buck? Yeah. I was like, uh, I was like, a tough I, don't kid, even, though. I was like, I don't even know what the buttons are. I'm going to, I will beat you. So we play all time Lakers, all time Celtics. I don't even know what I'm doing. He's beating me. And I'm like, by, by about third quarter, I figured out he's up 20. I'm like, start over. Let's play two normal teams. I'll be the Celtics. You can be anyone you want. He's like, fine. Okay. Quitter. So play another game. 2020 Rockets against 2020 Celtics. I'm like, you can pick anyway. You can be the Lakers, be, be Davis. And he's like, no, no, I'm going to be Harden. I'm going to be Houston. I'm going to score. I'm going to score. I'm just going to have Harden score a hundred points on you. I'm like, okay, bring it on motherfucker. So we go rocket Celtics. And you guys swear at each other too. No, I didn't really call him motherfucker. <laughs> yeah. I, I actually, I threw that in to color the story. <laughs> so we go rocket Celtics and I'm doing all 2020 Daryl Morris shit on him. He's just playing conventional. He's trying to get alley-oops. You know, he's because he doesn't really understand like the how basketball is played now part. He's trying to do dunks and beat people off the dribble and shit like that. And he's scoring. And then I'm coming down. I'm doing slashing kick to like Hayward in the corner, Tatum in the corner. Uh, I'm having like Kemba work around picks. I'm just shooting threes and I'm beating him. I, I'm up eight. He's getting madder and madder. I'm up 10. Harden's scoring like a madman. Harden's on his way to 60 and I'm winning by 10. He's like, yeah, but Harden's going to get 60. And I'm like, this is so funny because if other people were here, this is the whole problem with the James Harden experience is you're going to brag that he got 60, but I'm going to beat you by 10 points. So we're going, going, I'm hitting threes. I end up, I break them. I win by like, I don't know, 18. Harden ends up with 60. Didn't matter. Irrelevant. He gets so mad. He's like, he storms off, takes the thing out of the, takes the disc out of the game. I suck at this. I'm never playing again. He's mad at me. I'm like, no, you don't understand. You just lost to modern basketball. It had nothing to do with you or me. You didn't understand corner threes and, and setting a Pete and just fire up as many threes as possible is always going to beat what you're doing. Hard lesson for Ben Simmons. That's my story. Anyway, beating him was my highlight of the last two months. Yeah, kids freak out about that. I had a similar experience last Christmas with uh, Sully Miller, who I had on the on the podcast. And I, mm. I played with the Warriors. I think he was the Raptors. But we put it on like a lower level 
and I just started cooking with with curry and clay. Yeah, and lost, and he turned it off. He turned it off on me, and he was he was mad though. I no, you know, wait, wait, wait. He was he was in Toronto. He was like Sacramento. I said, look, I haven't played mm. in forever. I'm going to be the Warriors. He's like, all right, I'll be somebody terrible, and it was it's bad. Like young dudes don't like getting worked by the old bull. I would say the uh, twelve to fourteen is the sweet spot for handling a loss the worst like this. He was so yeah. mad. Yeah. He was mad for like two hours. And I had to throw in a couple of digs too. I'm like, hey man, I might be 50, but I was playing video games when you were like a zygote. You're never beating me in a basketball video game. I was doing a lot of that. I was doing a lot of, lot of strutting after. <laughs> um, anyway, fuck the Rockets. We're going to take a break and then we're going to do the rewatchables. Hey, no one is more reliable and committed than the men and women of the military. That's why since 1933, Navy Federal Credit Union has been committed to being there for our members through all of life's changes. During Military Appreciation Month, Navy Federal Credit Union is celebrating with special offers on car loans, credit cards, certificates, and more. Now more than ever, they want to say thank you. Join Navy Federal Credit Union in thanking service members during Military Appreciation Month. Show your appreciation with tweets, posts, captions, and letters using hashtag mission military thanks Navy federal credit union. Our members are the mission. That reminds me, speaking of Navy federal credit union, the new rewatchables that's coming Monday night, crimson tide, maybe the best Navy movie ever. It's either that or uh, top gun, but yeah, me and Chris Ryan and Sean fantasy break down an absolute classic 25 years after it was released. Denzel Washington, Gene Hackman had a lot of fun doing this one. The rewatchables, um, the best pop culture podcast there is, other than the other Ringer pop culture podcast we have. Check it out, Crimson Tide. That's coming Monday night. All right, back to this pod. All right, rewatchables. We're doing the entire '97 NBA Finals, concentrating the last two games. But this is such a fascinating document in so many different ways. This is Jordan has become unassailably great at this point. He's a superhero. We're all assuming he's going to be. Um, he's going to come through every step of the way, no matter what obstacle Utah team that had been around for a long time. We didn't really have a feel for them. Not enjoyable to watch as we're about to cover bulls go 69 and 13. This is the culmination of just a brutal 20 months that we talked about on your podcast. And we did the wizards pod where they had hit this, this point of they're basically the Beatles at this point. They're this traveling circus. They're covered differently than any sports team ever. All that stuff. Jazz go 64 and 18. 11 and three in the playoffs. They beat the Lakers, the Clippers, and then famously the Rockets. Stockton hits the three. Uh, the Lakers series, that was the Kobe Airball series. It kind of lost in the shuffle where Shaq's first year, Eddie Jones, um, Nick Van Exel, pretty even series. I, I remember in the moment thinking, oh, the Lakers will beat Utah. Utah always loses. Utah's done. And wasn't the case. It was MVP Carl Malone still being an MVP. So anyway, we get to the finals and the subplot emerges. The real MVP versus the guy who won the MVP. But then this whole other thing about, no, Carl Malone was actually awesome this year. 27 and 10. Incredible defensive player. Such a good passer out of the double team. The whole offense is built around him. You know, he's a deserving MVP. Where did you stand in 1997 on this question heading into the finals? Do you remember? Yeah, I do. Uh, this was, none of us liked watching Utah back then, okay? No one did. And even though there was never a series where I was necessarily rooting for Jordan, 
I was I wasn't rooting for the Utah Jazz. It just it was the NBA Finals. It was on, and there wasn't anyone I was emotionally connected to about the entire time. Now, because I was a huge Barkley guy, and I know I'm biased. I've always thought Barkley was better than Malone, and I think these this series is does not this this is a bad series for Carl Malone fans. By the way, it's awful. Um, you had the number one assist guy in the history of the league setting you up on every single possession your entire career, and Malone was a really good shooter for a big. He was incredible as a rebounder. He's pretty good as a passer. And good on fast break on the, as, yeah. a, as a closer on the wing was putting the knee up like pretty oh, unstoppable. Yeah. yeah. And dude, he played every game. He played yeah. every game and he, and he was actually like a real tough guy. Like when he and Rodman are getting into it, there's part of me that like wants him to fight Rodman for real because he would have twisted Rodman up. I mean, he just, he just would have, but whenever I see some of those dollar memes about five, four, three, build your dream team. Carl Malone's always on like the $4 line when he's on it. And Barkley's always on the $3 line. And when I think of peak Barkley versus peak Malone, I know who I'm taking. I'm taking Barkley. I wouldn't even argue it, but the, the composite, the full stat picture of who Carl Malone is, is incredible. So the fact that they're in this finals, they have this incredible record. They're awesome at home. They have this amazing home court atmosphere that's like ruthless which is part of the rodman story when he says something about mormons and gets fined and then does a weird jim gray interview where he starts crying before game six um, <laughs> he, he was out to lunch this series right he's he's so bad in the closing game i respected what stockton and malone did but it might have been the first time i was realizing something that you and i have just started talking about more and more the separation between playoff basketball and regular season basketball that if you're going to run this pick and roll with these two hall of famers like you're going to win a bunch of games but when i look at utah in this series there's like three or four guys for utah that wouldn't even play in today's nba that are playing minutes in the nba finals so you have the 2017 finals golden state averages 121.6 a game 91 shots a game in the five finals games, the Cavs were 114.8, 90.2 field goals a game. This 97 finals, and it gets worse the next year. The Bulls for the series, 87.8 points. Jazz were 87.2. 74.8 field goals for the Bulls, 71.2 for the Jazz. Say that again. And so the difference is what? How many so the shots? The difference is basically 35 shots a game. <laughs> Total. Now, a lot of that too, like you could talk about, it's not even defense. It's not, and both teams were slow paced teams. Chicago's a slow paced team because they're running their stuff. But when you're running these side pick and rolls or Malone uh, pin down where somebody comes up only to try to get it back to him in the post, like that takes time. And that's what they did. Well, but and they the also, they had a deliberate decision to slow down because they had two older guys, Malone and Stockton. They're 33 and, and 34 in this series. And Stockton, both of them had played a ton of minutes since the mid-80s. Stockton at that point, and I forget what year it started, but I always thought it was brilliant. Jerry Sloan's thing where he would take him out at the exact same points of the game. Malone was like one of the most durable. It's him, Kareem, and LeBron are the three most durable basketball players of all time. He was ridiculous. But as things started to slow down in the mid-90s for a variety of reasons, they really benefited because... They they didn't want to run. They didn't have the guys to run. But if it was an 84 to 81, 75 to 72 type game, they had an advantage. Um, couple things going on in this series. Rodman is just terrible this whole playoffs. And they're talking, the announcers 
are talking about him in a couple points. I watched a lot of this series this weekend. They're talking about him like he's gone after the year. Like I think everybody was like, "Fuck this guy. He's he enough." Like Malone was was doing whatever he wanted with him. They're playing Brian Williams, who became Bison Daylay, a lot. Rodman's only twenty seven minutes game in the finals. I think Bison Daylay was over twenty and plays a lot in Game Five and Game Six. And uh, and Pippen is banged up but still going. This is and, a, by the way, this whole thing for Chicago, Bill, is MJ Pippen, and then. You know, Kerr has his moments, especially with the game-winning shot. But Kukoc takes 36 shots. If you look at field goal attempts, Kukoc for the series is the third highest player in field goal attempts, and he's at 37. So basically, he's averaging six shots a game as the third most attempts. This series is all offense of MJ and Pippen, and then really Kerr with some shots in that game six. Jordan's usage rate in this series was uh, 37.9 and Pippen's 25.5. So it's basically the two of them. It, they, I, it's interesting. At the top of game one, they do this whole long NBC intro and they come out and it's, and it's, it's uh, Gukas, Bill Walton, and uh, Marv. And the, they're talking about how the Bulls just haven't played that well. And this is a team that would 72 games and 69 games that just made the finals and is the, the favorite. And they're like, yeah, they're just not playing well. They they can play well in spurts, but they can't really go. In. And we can feel because we've watched a lot of Bulls games now. Their defense just isn't at the same level by the time we get to this finals. They can't do the thing that they were able to do during this second three-peat where if they needed to dial up the defense, do the full court press for one quarter, whatever they just, they they're running on fumes at this point in a lot of different ways. So game one, hey, people like me, innocent bystander. I'm a Boston fan at that point. I don't, I don't really have a horse in this race. Were you rooting I, for anybody back then? I was so mad about the Carl Malone thing. It, it what, and what the MVP. Oh, I, I lost my mind on it. I, I was so upset. <laughs> I, I really care about the MVP. I was like, I just can't believe it. What are we doing? MJ won 69 games. Go watch this fucking team. Everyone knows he's the best player. What? Are, why did we do this? And then Malone actually makes the finals and it becomes this whole, oh, these two guys head to head. And what's funny is I watched the fourth quarter of every game except game two. I watched all of game five. I watched the whole second half of game six. Bill Walton's disappointment at Carl Malone as the series goes along is the funniest thing about all of these games on YouTube. Where is Carl Malone? Why is he settling for jump shots? Finally, a defensive rebound for Carl Malone. Walton is just like eviscerating him. And then MJ ends up winning the title. And by the end of it, I was just like, all right, let's all agree. This was the dumbest MVP we're ever going to give out, which I still feel that way, right? This is still the yeah, worst one. Yeah, but it's it's always that way with MVPs, though. Is is people go look what Utah's doing, and again, it's before this whole thing. But the fact they got to the finals because prior to this, it was very Rockets ish in that. Oh yeah, Utah, they're gonna win a million games. They win at home. Stock don't take them seriously. Pick and roll, pick and roll. So this them making the finals, you're like, oh okay. And then the end of game one, Utah should have won this game. I mean, it's not debatable. And then Carl Malone misses two free throws. For whatever reason, he can't make free throws in, in these finals. He shoots like 59%. Let me double check here. Um, basic stats here. Six games in the finals, free throw percentage, 60%. And this is somebody who made the free throws for his career. He can't make, he misses two, and then MJ just casually comes down, game winner. You know, they should have been down. 
Um, they weren't just, Hey, I'll just hit a buzzer. Did you remember game one? Did you remember the last couple of minutes of this game being as good as it was to watch? Cause you have just in the last, no, two because minutes, the, the flu game and then game six with Kerr were the game winner, like game one just over, gets lost. Yeah. Pippen makes a three. This is the last two minutes. Stockton comes down answers with a monster three. Jordan monster. Gets fouled. That's that Stockton three is huge. Cause he wasn't really shooting that much at that point. And then he's like, right. all right, enough of this. And then it's a huge three on the right side. Jordan gets fouled, makes one or two, misses the second. Stockton comes down, misses a three. Same shot, but he misses it. Malone gets the rebound, gets fouled with like 14 seconds left. Goes to the line, tie game. Gacks him. Both. Jordan gets the rebound, even though he's on the third position on the foul line. He's got Antoine Carr next to him, who... I don't know what Antoine Carr's doing that, but it's just Jordan was just like, I'm getting the re he's gonna miss this and I'm getting the rebound, gets it, and then comes down, makes the game winner, and does the fist pump that Kobe would end up, I I think, uh admittedly stealing that fist the the one fist pump up there. And by the end of that, you're just like, God, what did we do with this MVP thing? How stupid was this? But it's a really exciting game. I, I really enjoyed it. Game two's a blowout. Hold on, MJ real quick though, but I know yeah. we gotta fry up. One of the biggest things, though, too, in this is that Utah was trying to figure out how to double MJ there late, and Carl Malone was like the guy that would bring the. He screws up like every. They screw up four double team attempts on MJ at the end of this game, and it's just so funny how it's like, oh, okay, this guy's just going to go ahead and win. The Antoine Carr stuff is hysterical, but I I want to stay with your Walton thing real quick as it carries over. Walton crushes Malone every game. Like you and I have every both watched almost every game now in this series in the last weekend. Walton, who was weird, because if you like Bill Walton now, I, it's not my thing. I get why people like it. And I actually think that more broadcasts with ESPN with all of this college basketball inventory when things start up again, I think ESPN should have always done some different things. Like, I think they should have had, yeah, I'll say selfishly, like Van Pelt and I with somebody who's like a straight-laced college basketball guy, put us on a Tuesday and have yeah. the two guys on your radio show be doing color commentary for like an ACC game. Like, I actually think you have all of these college basketball games try some different stuff. So even if Bill Walton's not my thing and I'm more of like a Dave Pash guy, I like that they're doing it and then Walton's doing all this stuff and people really seem to like it, so I'm all for it. What people don't realize, and again, Walton becoming this vociferous dude who, who couldn't talk. This is like Drake going from Del Grassi to run in the rap game. Right. And Walton, who just wasn't even interested and didn't have that kind of personality, had the speech impediment, to become this guy that fixes it all. And if you've ever met Bill, he's a really, really incredibly nice guy. He's like mean and nasty. And I didn't even like it. And it's weird. It's just so, it's it's like the weirdest thing because everything's like the biggest deal. And sometimes he's not even making any sense and he's getting the play wrong, but he's just all about the hyperbole. And for whatever reason, he decided that he was just going to crush Carl Malone in every single moment. Even when he made fadeaways, Carl Malone's just great fadeaway shooter as a big. There's nothing you can do with it. And he hits that shot. And when he would take it and miss it, Bill Walton would act like he threw it underhand from half court. And it colored, I'm, I'm watching it, mad that Malone was the MVP anyway and hating some of the shots he took. And Walton, who I was never a big fan of announcing those games in the mid-90s, it was the one time I, I felt like I, I'm completely aligned with Bo Walton. <laughs> Even though he's being super mean, <laughs> I totally agree with everything he's saying. So game two is a blowout. MJ goes 38, 13, and nine. Malone's six for 20 from the field. Now we're like, oh, this could this be a sweep? 
or is Utah's home crowd? Can they save this two, three, two series game three, Utah wins by 11 Malone puts up 37 and 10, 15 for 29 field goal. And this is where I watched the fourth quarter of this. The bulls are just, they're having a lot of trouble scoring. They, the rod, they're not getting any offensive rebounds anymore unless it's Pippen or Jordan. They can't figure out the coup coach thing. Steve Kerr is ice cold. They can't this figure is not out a, what their five is. This is not a coup coach series. I, what Dude, is? Your whole coup coach? Is there, right, is like, there a coup coach series? When, when was it? To, I think, alert me. <laughs> like People were so mad. Well, they weren't really that mad, but the last dance when it starts off, it's like, hey, what's up with coup coach? Go back and watch these games. You're like, no, they did. They, they were good. Yeah, they were, they were fine. So game four, um, game fours are always perennially kind of the great game of a series. If you, if, if they go six or seven odds, are game four was the best game. The teams have felt each other out properly at this point. Utah wins 78, 73, <laughs> 140 field goals total in this game. MJ scores 22 points, no free throws, zero the in Bull, the third. The bulls only shoot 12 free throws total. And there's some really fishy calls at the end of this game. And I would like to usher you into one of my favorite NBA things, Rosillo, the David Stern referee vortex from 97 to 2003, where you just could tell with certain games, the instructions were like, Hey man, stop, stop calling those cheap fouls on, on this, or, Hey, you've got to call Malone on those moving screens. Whatever they told the rest before the games are just executed correctly. For whatever reason, the bulls aren't just the bulls are going to the basket. They're just not getting any calls. This is Walton really gets frustrated about Carl Malone not taking over, but Jordan makes two straight. Utah misses five straight shots. The Bulls are up five with 2.30 left. Timeout. Pippen goes to the bench. He's stretching out his back. That's weird. Come back in. Stockton makes a 28-foot three. Now, all of this is notable because the Bulls never blew games ever. This was like Rivera blowing a save where it's just like, oh, it's the ninth inning. Rivera's going to get the save. It's done. The Bulls are up 5, 230 left, up 2-1 in the series. The game's over. They have Michael Jordan. They're not losing. Stockton hits his three. Jordan comes back with a fall away. Hornacek mislap. Timeout, Bulls. Now there's a minute 30 left. Bulls still up four. And MJ does the, the turnaround fall away thing on Russell. Stockton comes running and strips him. Fast break, fouled on the layup, makes one of two. And then basically the Bulls don't score again, but this leads to the famous Stockton play where gets the rebound, long baseball pass to Carl Malone, layup. Uh, Steve Kerr misses a corner three and all. Utah steals the game. MJ misses a three that goes in and out of the buzzer. Utah steals it. It's 2-2. I remember in the moment being absolutely shocked by this. I thought... I thought it just had all the makings of like, oh, of course the Bulls are going to win tonight. Now it's 2-2. Game five's in Utah. And there's, do you remember there started to be a little buzz at this point? Like, oh, maybe Utah figured him out. What's going on here? The Stockton steal on Jordan is incredible. And it's just a tribute to Stockton. Uh, watching these games, him in the pick and roll, the way he would drag all the attention towards him, knowing he was setting up the other thing. And then if you decided to not stay with him, he was going to immediately take that shot. And you watch him going, he should be shooting more. It's a little bit like the Nash stuff where you go, how come Stockton's actually not taking more shots? But it's just the way he was built. And I think the 15,000 assists, it worked out all right for, for Stockton. Yeah, no, uh, no concerns. <laughs> right, right. But 
he hits some of these huge shots in these games where stock is like, all right, enough of this. Like, let me just go ahead and hit one of these things. And, you know, there's some of the stuff that they do at the end of game six and five. We'll, we'll talk about where you know, they're running just this two man thing. And all he's doing is like, okay, if, if you want a third guy to get involved here, like I'm going to slow him down with this dribble that I'm constantly keeping alive. And I'm doing all these things on the Jordan strip. It's this help defense. I actually thought MJ getting called for the foul was the wrong call there. Stock oh my god! Left. It's a terrible call. He, like it's actually kind of funny he, to see MJ not get a couple calls. <laughs> they didn't get any calls in this game. He does the LeBron block in the 2016 Finals on Stockton, and and Stockton's pushing off, and they're like foul with two hands. Yeah, that was bonkers. Yeah, I'm right. with you. I was shocked so, by that. So that doesn't happen. Then MJ actually makes a mistake on that incredible Stockton rebound pass to Malone, the baseball thing, because MJ doesn't get back. He lets Malone get behind him. And then as I'm watching it, I, I mean, I knew what happened, but watching all these games, I'm almost like, wait a minute, Jordan missed it. The three yeah. almost goes in. I forgot. It, hit, it that, hits both sides of the rim and then goes out. Yeah. And it's an impossible three. He's dribbling yeah. left to right and he kind of turns and squares his body and the ball almost goes in. And even though you've known the outcome for 20 plus years, you're sitting here, at least I was watching it kind of in disbelief going, oh, that's right. They... They lose this game. Walton still is killing Malone all the time. I mean, it's it's the constant. Marv has a couple very disappointed MJ moments. Well, you know, MJ not not exactly getting it done to to the standards. Right. And, and like Pippen hits a shot at one point. He's like Scotty Pippen. Like there's. A, I don't even think it's this game. I think it's another game where MJ has thirty plus, and he's like, yeah, I think it's game five. But like he'll say Pippen carrying the offense right now, and you're like, yeah, yeah. MJ's almost got forty, dude. But yeah, whatever. settle down, Marv. So the Stockton thing, let's do that quickly. Because that baseball, the three that he hits to basically save this game when they're down five, and then the steal, and then the baseball pass. This is kind of the John Stockton game of of the series. He's, I had a hard time writing about him in my book because if you go through his actual prime, he's got the 88 playoffs uh, going against the Lakers when that team kind of, had their breakout moment. They take the Lakers to seven. He's really good in that series. But then, you know, you go from like 89 to 96. And I, and I listed all the, all the guys in my book, like Kevin Johnson whoops him in 1990. Um, Terry Porter outplays him in, in uh, 92. He had a lot of trouble with Gary Payton, especially in 96. Um, where Gary Payton just whooped him. And I, I think he hit a point where people were like, eh, John Stockton, he's fine. He's putting up stats, but eh. And then he has this career rebirth in these two playoffs because he hits that big three to win the Rocket Series and then some of the shots he hits in this. And I think by the time this playoffs are ended, it's now become a thing where it's like, John Stockton, that dude's fucking clutch. And it just wasn't the case for most of his prime, but he was able to kind of reinvent that but basically by making huge fucking plays and i'm with you i don't understand why he didn't shoot more threes he was a guy his entire career like nash every time he shot a three you thought it was going in it's it's just a you almost want to go in a time machine and go tell him in like 1990 like hey john shoot threes shoot like eight a game it'll be great for you your team will be better off don't it's not selfish it's and actually I don't know, selfish you're not shooting right and, and i don't like his whole thing was, I'm going to do like, I'm going to do what I'm reading you. And that's how I'm going to react. And if I'm throwing it over to a hall of famer, Carl Malone is going to be getting like 28 a game. 
then I'm good. But where I always feel guilty with the Jazz, specifically these two guys, is there's something to be said about never missing a game. But when it's you and another guy who's really good for like 15 years where you're playing this two-man game every game for 15-plus years, the accumulation of stats, it gets it's great, but I also think at times it can be misleading in, well, who would you actually want in one of these games? And well, and they, there's, a, but they, there's a bunch of point guards I would still rather have over Stockton is my point. Oh, yeah. But, I mean, think about where we were with the league. They win 64 games in 97 with a Jazz team that clearly wasn't one of their best teams. Just wasn't. You have like, Stockton Malone like, in there. Like Greg Foster, who always thought he was an all-star, like the Greg Foster moments are hysterical. When Antoine Carr comes in and hits a couple buckets, and then it's like, uh-oh. And then he's, yeah. he's taking like Let turnarounds. Right. Yeah. Like, yeah. And Antoine Carr was one of these dudes. Like Antoine Carr in this series, Ostertag, I, you know, he's a good passer. He's mobile. Foster, um, Isley had moments, and he actually had a really long career, but he has some moments in, in some of the games in Chicago where he's just dribbling the air out of the ball. Byron Russell's all right. Hornacek is is a is a nice third or fourth option on a good team, that kind of stuff. But there's a but few he's guys another that, he was another past his prime guy at that point. Hornacek yeah. was great on those early nineties Suns teams, but he's also in his mid thirties by this point. And he's and he's bounced around and been on a couple of Yeah, and he's teams. out there. He's also battling, you know, he they put him on Jordan and then they switch it to Byron Russell, but then Hornacek ends up on Pippen, and then in the beginning of game six, they're like, hey, look, you're just too big. If you wanted to do, by the way, because I don't think any of these social media arguments have anything to do with truth. Like, I think memes are to make points, and video cut-ups are to make points, not to tell the truth. But you could if you wanted to do an anti-MJ thing and be like, let me get this straight. Like, Dan Marley's guarding him. Jeff Hornacek's guarding him. Tim Legler makes an appearance. The, the Ricky Dumas stretch is embarrassingly bad. It's way worse than what Marley did against him. And then even though Craig Elo did a terrific job closing out on the game winner, um, and Elo, no one remembers that he actually put them up on a game-winning, what was going to be a game-winning layup there. But that would be the kind of thing where it's like, I don't care that I'm telling the truth. I'm just trying to make some sort of point that, oh, yeah, you love MJ? Like, these are the guys guarding him. But um, well, it would Dumars be unfair. Was, Dumars and Starks were probably the best ones. Stockton in the... Uh, 97, the point guards he goes against in the 97 playoffs. Derek Martin on the Clippers, Nick Van Exel, Matt Maloney, just a legendary, terrible performance in that uh, Western final. Stockton kills him. And then Steve Kerr in the finals, basically. And then in 98, Matt Maloney again, Avery Johnson, Nick Van Exel in the Western finals, and Kerr. I mean, what was really going on was the, the point guard situation in the league went downhill big time. Because you had Magic and Isaiah are gone. KJ and Price are, are kind of fading away by the 97 range. Penny's never really gets to where he needs to go. Kid and Marbury aren't ready. Kenny Anderson Iverson. and David Stoudemire are not there yet. Iverson's not ready. Strickland and Van Exel are probably the only guys like in their quote-unquote primes at this point. Mark Jackson, Mookie Blaylock, not really there. And that was it. It was just this weird... Do you say Peyton? Did you say Peyton? And Peyton. Yeah, we we said yeah. Peyton was right. the I think the best point guard of of that stretch. Um but yeah, it's it's weird to look back at that Jazz team and be like, "Wow, they won 78 games." And you watch them and it's like Howard Isley, Shannon Anderson, <laughs> Greg Foster, Greg Ostag, but the, the league was just uh just not in as good of a shape back then. Uh all right, so go to uh game 5. The flu game. 
which features stuff like the Jazz are up 23 to 9. They're up <laughs> 36 to 20. Um, it just there's Scotty has a one dunk over Carl Malone that's awesome. But they're they're talking about the flu the whole time. Gukas is really into it. He's like, Michael, he's just he's really laboring, Marv. He just he's in so much trouble. And now we would be suspicious if this was 2020. We would feel like they were manipulating this. We would feel like the guy was milking it. They nobody was doing that in 97. So they're coming back from commercial and he's got an ice pack on his neck and he's covered in sweat. And it's like, oh yeah, there's clearly something wrong with this guy. But in the second quarter, they do that Bulls thing and they just will their way back. They start making plays on D. They play an awesome quarter. Jordan has 18 in the quarter. Um and somehow they get it. So it's a four point game at halftime with Jordan, like clearly sick. This is where I put in a little thing for you here. Power rank the jazz players. You haven't given up yet before I get to the second half. Here are your <laughs> nominees. Greg Foster, Shannon Anderson, Howard Isley, Greg Os Ostertag, and Chris Morris. Out of those five, who have you not given up yet on yet? Uh, you know, I kind of like the way Shannon Shannon Anderson came around, even though he had some bad bad layup moments in Game Six. Unbelievable! Uh, the his his Game Six, it was like he was drunk. He couldn't. What he, happened he kept, to him? He kept beating Pippen on these backdoor cuts, and you're like, "What the hell is Pippen looking at?" Because honestly, Utah watching this, you go, "It'd be weird to defend them today because you would just ignore these guys. You ignore other guys." So even though we talk about the spacing of today. I think some of the defenses of today would look at this and go, like, why is Carl Malone staying 15 feet out on Dennis Rodman? Like, Utah for being, I think they were ninth in defensive efficiency. Chicago, I think, was second. So Utah was a good defensive team. But they just do some stuff at the end of these games where I'm like, what the hell are you guys doing? What about what about when they would have Ostertag would be at the top of the key watching the Malone-Stockton thing with, like, Jeff Hornacek standing next to him? And Anderson five feet away. There, you'd have three guys at the top of the key, all five feet apart, and and the corner is just open. And it's like, well, just put a shooter down the corner. What do you? This didn't come up in any coaches meeting. You didn't. You didn't realize that this would make the pick and roll easier. It's bizarre to watch. Uh, really, it feels like the running, running the ball on first and second down every time. Like that's what it looks like with some of these defensive assignments. Where you go, why, why are you showing on him? And, you know, yeah. I know that we've we've talked about some of the stuff where you go, well, the illegal defense, the illegal defenses. I'm telling you, like they they tried a double MJ in game one and they screwed up like four straight possessions or four or five possessions in my notes. So um, talking about the guys that gave up on. I want to stay with the flu thing real quick, though, because I remember watching it in the moment going, all right, like enough. He's sick. <laughs> and they were glued to him the whole time on the bench and that became the thing and it made me think that like the way we do seven one-on-ones with Enos Canner about fasting and you'd be like hey he's not going to be playing in the fourth quarter but you know here's our sit down with Dennis Canner uh if this happened now it would be Rinaldi would be like in a bubble above him just on flu watch like we would we would obsess about it in a way that would like people would end up deciding like, you know what? Maybe LeBron's better than this guy. Cause they'd be so the, annoyed by it. You're talking beginning of the internet, no Twitter yet. I mean, we're 12 years away from Twitter even becoming anything yet. And 
nobody knowing he was sick until you start watching the game. So I think that's why they were doing it that way because they wanted to make sure everybody who was coming into the game knew that Michael Jordan was sick. Now you would just, we would know, you know, 12 hours for the game. There was no way to know back then. You just turn the game on and be like, what's wrong with Michael Jordan? Why is he all sweaty? Why does his skin look like, you know, he like, looked terrible. Like murky. I mean, yeah. His skin looks right? murk, murky. Um, we always, there's been various reports on what happened. My favorite is the hangover thing that he got, but it really does seem like it was food poisoning. I don't know why it's called the flu game. It's the food poisoning game is what it was. I think he, and he doesn't he get hangovers him. by the way. Like if we'd learned anything no. through some of these yeah. mid nineties years is that he could stay out all the time and that he was ready to go. Uh, I told you when I went to park city, I, I had a source telling me that he was the guy that that spit in his food or it was his friend, right. that spit in his food, which again, I didn't believe any of it, but it was just great Intel as inaccurate as it probably was. Yeah. It was like when you run into the guy in Boston, who's like, I was there for Clemens's 20 K game against the Mariners. You're like, no, you weren't. There was like 9,000 people. Like, you dude, there. Rosie Ruiz. I was on that team. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You weren't there. Stop it. Uh, so Chris Morris is the guy you haven't given up on yet. So always loved Chris Morris's the version of him that I believed is existed. I think he also like murdered the Celtics, uh, young when he was younger. I don't know. I, I feel like he had some really huge game against the Celtics. Do you remember that? I think Heinsohn the whole time was like, I, I can't yeah, believe this. Of furious. this yeah. Nobody. At one point in <laughs> in uh, in because Morris hits a bunch of shots. He is he's eleven points in this game in game five. And at one point, Marv goes, Chris Morris, a tumultuous time, a tumultuous <laughs> seven years with the Nets. <laughs> tumultuous. And then he goes, with the Jazz, hasn't gone that great either. Uh, one time he was escorted <laughs> off the bench by security guards because Jerry Sloan wanted him to leave. <laughs> he just throws this out. Like, what? Chris Morris was escorted from the bench by security guards during a game by his coach? So anyway, he hit some shots. And uh, you watch game six, I watch game five. One of the really fun things about this game in the third quarter, there's some great Brian Williams, Carl Malone bitterness because Carl Malone does the cheap elbow in his back leading to Bison Dele coming back. He's Brian Williams and with a hard forearm shiver. And then it continues and he comes down and he's like basically trying to goad Malone into a fight. And then he scores on him uh, like a minute later. The dunk, he, the right-handed. Yeah, oh, it's great stuff. So, um, Anyway, fourth quarter, MJ goes up a notch and, you know, he finishes, what does he finish with? 38 points. It's amazing to watch. Walton just veers into, where is Carl Malone? Like, he's just, <laughs> like, he's just losing his mind that Carl Malone's not doing better. Uh, it is a Carl Malone chokerama. It's really, it's, it's not, uh, it's not great. Stockton hits another monster three, uh, and Pippen, it's to put them up three near the end. Pippen hit some free throws. Utah's up one. Incredible sequence. Stockton missed three. We're now in the final minute. Malone, uh, Utah rebound. Malone airball as Walton's just like, oh, like he's like screaming. Uh, comes down. Jordan gets a foul, makes one of two, but gets the his own rebound, leading to the famous play where they reset. For some reason, they hop off him because Pippen's posting up. I, I'm Pippen's like five for eighteen in this game. I'm I'm gonna settle for the Pippen post up every time. Uh, to MJ hits the three, and then the incredible sequence where the Bulls are up three. Utah comes down. They get a dunk. Stockton the Oster tag. 
14 seconds left. Ball's up one. Pippen is trapped in the corner on the inbounds. Malone's right there. Pippen's like a 65% free throw shooter. And Malone just freezes, doesn't do anything. The Bulls get it out, and they end up getting it to somebody else for a dunk, and the Jazz just completely blow it. It's unbelievable. It's an unbelievable game to watch. You, it's like when you watch sports movies and the other team that's not the hero in the sports movie fucks up, like the team at the end of Hoosiers when they're up four and they're just fucking the game up, and it's like, oh, that makes sense. It's a sports movie. This That, that team has to fuck up. This was real life. And they're doing all the other team in the sports movie fuck up moves. And that's it. <laughs> they're carrying Michael Jordan off. It's this game's a fucking sports movie. Other themes. Ron Harper non existent through this series, it felt like. And Tough. I I always like Ron Harper. Uh I like the version of him that exists. Let's look at a couple plus minuses that may not mean anything. John Stockton was a minus thirty one in this game. He took ten shots and had five assists. Again, Malone can't make his free throws, five and nine. Greg Foster was a minus 28 in 16 minutes. Took three shots, missed them all. Did make some free throws. So it's just one of these deals that's very repetitive throughout this entire Jordan thing where this series felt more and more like two guys without a lot of support and then Michael and Scotty, although the Kerr part in game six is is really a big part Kerr of Kerr comes through, yeah. He Kerr comes, comes through, through huge because it's not just that shot. Um, to win it, it's it's a couple other threes that he had hit, a couple other buckets. He hits, he, it's a two pointer. He hits a three, and then Scotty. They have this run that I'll I could, I'll get to a little bit later. But it's it's just living in. It must have been so much fun to be a Bulls fan to just never be afraid of any of this. Like these were expected outcomes, and it's even funny too. Like when MJ hits the game winner and one, he's exhausted in this one in Game Five. But you can even say on one of the shots that they hit in Game Six, they're so matter of fact about it. Like, oh, hey, you know, we just won game one of the NBA finals on a buzzer beater. All right, cool. Little arm pump. Let's head Let's head back because it's not, it's so routine to him is really the point I'm trying to make. Chris Morris outscores every bull on the, in game five, except for Pippen, Jordan, and Luke Longley. If you want to know about the bull supporting cast, Rodman, this 97 playoffs is just a no-show. He comes through a little bit in game six. He's a little more active. He was hurt. He had some off-court stuff and um you're going to you're going to describe the game 6 interview for us in a second but I will say this this was this was the time of Jordan's career when he really was a superhero he hit that point and I and only a couple of basketball players have hit this point I think Bird hit this point in the 87 playoffs with the steal against Isaiah and where you just you just assume the guy's going to come through it's like he's just done it too many times with Jordan, the flu game was was not surprising. It, you kind of thought he was, it, it was like, he'll figure this out. He's going to win. It was like he was our generation's Ali. And yet he was so sick and he was so, you know, he wasn't even drinking Gatorade because he was afraid he was going to throw up. Uh, I actually think it's an underrated game, even though it's a famous game that's been talked about a million times. I think it's an amazing accomplishment that he pulled this off. In the altitude in Utah is the other thing. It's not like he was in, like, Orlando. You know, he's in the single toughest place to play, and the guy was fucking sick. So, they were 47-3, anyway. and three, including the playoffs at home before that loss. Really? Utah. And really loud. 47-3. Place going nuts. Awesome crowd. So... All right, go to game six. Malone was one of six in the second half of game five. So game six, Rodman had said while he was in Salt Lake, uh, you know, how's it going here? And he was like, well, it's all these Mormons. 
And then he, they were like, what? And he's like, no, like repeat that. He's like all these Mormons basically saying like, he couldn't, he couldn't have any fun. He couldn't be Dennis in Salt Lake, which is not a shock. Um, right. He's, he's so you know, interesting he, though. What a fascinating guy. <laughs> so then he does a sit down with Jim Gray where it gets, it, for those, I just don't think enough younger people listening understood what those interviews are like. You're like, okay, cool. You're like, you're getting the sit down with Rodman. And then Rodman does, oh, people just want to be out for Dennis Rodman. And Gray does a really good job of pressing him. He's like, well, Dennis, you're the guy that kicked the photographer. You're the guy that said, hey, you know, and what he had said about the Mormons was dismissive. And then he ends up being fine. And he's like, why can't I just donate to that, to the church? He's like, but everybody's got all these thoughts on Dennis Rodman, Dennis Rodman, Dennis Rodman. And then it just gets weird where you start to actually feel bad for him knowing that Dennis probably has a lot lot of stuff going up there and he starts to cry and gray's like hey are you getting emotional he's like i'm not getting emotional and then he starts breaking down he takes off the microphone in the middle of this this is all pre-game to game six as they're trying to win another nba title and by the way this is all on youtube it's all there right you guys can go watch this it's it's fucking bockers right and gray's like are you going to be back next year he's like i don't know i don't you know i it's just the whole thing is is weird and it's part of you know Dennis's uh, quest for attention and all of this, but at the same time, you're like ah, this this whole thing is just really really I weird. Was, and then, I but was, that was the point we were trying to make a couple of weeks ago. Like nobody wants to it hear was it. worn out by '97, and you hear the announcers at one point they're talking about Rodman like he's not coming back. They're like, well, we know Rodman's not coming back. They're not putting up with this again. But he ended up coming back because they didn't really have another option. Yeah, yeah, that's it. And. You know, he he actually takes a three in this game. He takes a turnaround jumper. Like he's trying this stuff and, and none of it, none of it's working. This game is painful. I text you after watching. I said, please don't assign me any more of this series. Uh, it's two to two, five minutes into the game, basically. And then Malone airballs another free throw, which is insane. Once you miss those two at the end of game one, he's a mess the rest of the way. Even the ones that went in, he's falling back. He doesn't want anything to do with it. Walton, the quote, draw iron, please, Carl. Like, <laughs> he just says, like, straight up, he airballs one. He's on his case. What What would you have believed Bill Walton, like, if if we just read quotes that he said this series, like, we're, we're like, what a loser Carl Malone is. Like, where was the line for him to cross? Because it's, like, almost there. He's straddling it the whole time if you watch all of these games you're gonna wonder like i was close to researching is there's some malone bill walton <laughs> thing that i don't know about because it's look, carl does not have a great final like you can look at the raw numbers and go oh look at him he was pretty good they didn't have a ton of options there's just so many moments where you go i need i need the mvp to look different than this guy at the end of the close of these some of these games um it's just bad i mean this game is just bad all the way through the Bulls bench is in there, and they do a little ten zero run with like Kerr and Bushler. And, that's the run. Uh, that's the run. It's it's Kerr, Pippen, and that's really fun. No, and MJ's waiting. It's the start of the fourth quarter. MJ comes back in um, around eight thirty three. The Jazz are up this whole game. They're up the entire game. The Bulls don't take a lead. Seventy four seventy three. It's yeah. It's the first lead since the Bulls are up two nothing. This 10-0 run is Pippen, Kerr threes, and then two mid-range jumpers, and then MJ comes back in. They won kind of the game with MJ being on the bench, and then MJ takes over. They go to double him with Stockton, and then that's when well, he wait, hits Kerr. Wait, go backwards, though. Brian Russell hits a huge three. It's I had forgotten this. It was 86-86 with a minute 30 left. Yeah. This was out of three of the four games the Bulls won the games were basically either tied or they were losing in the last two minutes. The series was a lot closer than I remembered. Uh, but Pippen missed 
MJ missed a fall away. Jordan missed a drive, no call. And Shannon Anderson just keeps missing layups. And it's really bad. And then finally it ends up with the MJ Kerr play, which Utah just cannot figure out the double thing this whole series. They're doubling with Stockton. Kerr moves into the foul line, hits the little jumper. Right, because when MJ hits uh, the three in game, is it the is it the flu game, game five, where he hits the three? Because they doubled yeah. Pippen. And then Jordan just repositions himself and then hits that three. I mean, it's just nuts. I know we say it every week, but you're like, oh, these are three other game winners that sort of get lost uh, for MJ here. But MJ makes that read when they go to double. But you're right. Russell hits that monster three. But Utah can't really get anything going. And, you know, it's not like their defense is terrible, but I, I feel like they always kind of go. Like, I mean, again, it's going up against MJ, so whatever. But their offense okay, what are we running here? What are we running with our pick and roll and stuff? And when it's it's really focusing on two different guys and there's not this third option in a lot of the offensive stuff that they're running, I do think it becomes a little bit easier. It. Yeah, it just comes a little easier. And uh, Well, and your guy Pippen makes an incredible steal to clinch this game. It's basically, he's like Ed Reed. No, it's it's crazy. No, he, he makes a read. I think it gets tipped on the inbound. And then Pippen, I don't know, my, my video footage isn't, perfect on this but i think the inbound it just ends up kind of it like goes cross court and then pippen gets over there and then kukoc gets a dunk and then you know i look it's crazy kerr hits the game winner and they're going to win a title and everybody's like totally relaxed like oh okay hold on you know we get a possession here we got to stop him the highlight the pippen still is a great moment all right do the vessi stern thing so they're launching the wnba the we got next campaign they run a full feature on women's hoops and James Naismith saying that basketball is the perfect women's sport. Hannah Storm, they throw to her. It's like, hey, WNBA is going to be awesome. Stern talks about it. It's like, we can't wait to expand. We have you know this many franchises now, but it, there's so many people interested in expansion. And then they come back and it's Peter Vesey time. And Vesey, Vesey deserves credit for being a guy that was on TV with a different background as a non-player, non-coach who was really at the time, like as big as any other NBA writer out there, you know, Bob Ryan, maybe the only other one, or you put Sam Smith yeah. up there. Um, no. no, Bob Ryan and Vessi are the Vessi. There's yeah. somebody in LA though that I'm not thinking about that definitely is a big deal too. But anyway, nah. all right, all right, look. So Vessi sits there with Stern and it's like, all right, David, what's going on with these salaries? You got role players making way too much. What are you going to do here? Whether it's the coaches who are making too much. The players are making too much. Some would say even the commissioner's making too much. That was his opener? <laughs> yeah. Well, because it was based on this thing where Phil Jackson was allowed to, and I think this is kind of some of the stuff where Kraus was like sick of Phil. Phil had a clause in his contract that allowed him to openly negotiate with other teams while he was under contract with the Bulls, okay? And there was a lot of stuff that went on. I'd forgotten about this. You would know better than I would on this. There was like a lot of stuff where it was like, wait a minute, Phil can just sit here and like throw out feelers while this team is in the playoffs. And I think that was some of the stuff with Kraus and Reinsdorf. We're like, who's this fucking guy? And yeah. Vessi's like, how did you guys allow this to happen? Is this something that's going to happen with coaches' contracts in the future? And Stern is I mean, while it was. Right. And, and Stern goes, it got past us. Like, doesn't BS at all. <laughs> just looks at Vessi and goes, you know what? They slipped one past us. We didn't notice it. And it's going to be the last time it happens. And then it leads into Vessi essentially saying, like, everybody's making way too much money. What are you going to do? <laughs> and David just goes, well, you know, I would agree with you on the third part about the commissioner. We'd love to get some of the NBC on air guys to have a salary cut as well. Goes back at Vessi. They yuck it up and pretend like the whole thing's cool. 
But I remember just so many people like Vessi was abrasive. He's in New York City. He, you know, he's an old school columnist where they write that kind of stuff. Like once was it Alonzo Mourning who he called the organ groaner yeah. instead of the organ donor because he was Joe barely cares. Yeah. Yeah. But that stuff played like that was the stuff you couldn't do that. Now you'd be done if you did it. But Vessi was the first one of the first media members that, you know, he'd be out there halftime. And he would just crush somebody with an opinion also backed by, hey, this is kind of the, this, I don't want to use the word scuttlebutt because I sound like a loser, but uh, hey, you know, this is kind of what's going on. I'm going to fill you in a little bit here, but fuck this guy. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, unfortunately, Vessi's not even really a part of, he's not a part of the last dance at all because I know that came up. But the back and forth with he and Stern is one of the most entertaining things of game six. I liked when he was on TV. I enjoyed it because he, he he passed the test of you never knew what he was going to say because it felt like he had no buffer at all. He just didn't give a shit. He's like, I'm going to I'm gonna say whatever. I don't care what the repercussions are. None. Eventually, people cared, and he was off TV. I, I think when he was on TNT with Barkley, that went really badly, and I think that was it. It was a early with Bar early Barkley TNT. There was a clash. You can research some of it. It's in. It's on the internet. There's some good Vessi stuff. But yeah, he would challenge these dudes. So my my big takeaway from '97 uh, reliving it was, by the time we're done with this series, everyone's like that. This is the greatest basketball player we're ever going to see. We don't even know the '98 season's coming yet. We he he had already finished. He had already submitted the resume, and we had approved it as this is our best basketball player ever. It was done. It was a wrap. And then this last dance season pushes it over the top. So when you're watching uh, either episode seven and eight or the last two episodes, I think that's a good way to frame it. All right. Uh, Ryan Rosillo, pleasure as always. So what do you have on Tuesday? We got Anik, John Anik from the UFC. I'm also going to reorganize every college football national championship. Little, little project I've been working on. And then also this week, uh, the story of the drug website, Silk Road. The man behind it. A book came out, American Kingpin. I'll have the author, Nick Bilton, on. Great. All right. See you next Sunday. Thanks to ZipRecruiter. Thanks to Navy Federal Credit Union. May is Military Appreciation Month. Navy Federal Credit Union, proud to serve active duty military veterans and their families. During Military Appreciation Month, Navy Federal Credit Union celebrating with special offers on car loans, credit cards, certificates, and more. Join Navy Federal Credit Union in thanking service members during Military Appreciation Month by using the hashtag, hashtag military thanks. That's Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Don't forget, new rewatchables coming. That's right. Monday night, Crimson Tide. And then we'll have another BS pod uh, on Tuesday and then again on Thursday. See you then.